Hey, it's Tia Carrer, and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys. Have you been going through the um the the free view stuff like you mentioned before where you wanted to um I did watch that, although I don't think I've oh no, I watched one other from Freeview, which we'll get to, but yeah. But it, it is a gold mine of B movie shash. But also some like gems as well. Well, I say there's some gems, but I haven't actually found one yet. Films <laughs> 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 I've, I've vaguely heard of. Uh, oh look at that that must be amazing i vaguely heard of it oh yeah i vaguely heard of that oh it's, it's crap okay oh there's a reason it's on a free channel yeah <laughs> um uh, as, as, as before we go into the obviously everyone welcome to kino kingdom 75 um <clears throat> we should really address the elephant in the room Rupert, which is alan arkin passing away i know as always, that's uh, harsh half the arkins dar himself I know, and Robert Starr's already dead, isn't he? Oh yeah, he's he's long gone, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yes. It was uh, it was sad about Alan Arkin, but I mean, he was old, so it, you know, it's it's not one of those like early deaths which is just horrendous, like Philip Seymour Hoffman and people like that. It's like he had a pretty good career, well, I. So if if you. Mm. Uh, type in Alan Arkin into Google and the first image that comes up if you can imagine Tom Holland playing him in a biopic of his life look uh, Alan Arkin he's in a suit sort of looking at the ah. camera grease it's clearly Tom Holland but then if you go slightly to the right you'll see that in that part of his biopic it will be played by Tom Sizemore <laughs> yeah there's a hint of the Tom Sizemore now yeah, yeah. Uh, and if and if you go even further to the right with the YouTube Good Morning America still image, it's being yeah. played by Alf Garnet. <laughs> there's so many facets to his life I didn't realize. Oh, there's so many phases, aren't there? Uh, yes, I, I, but uh, Alan Arkin, yeah, I just he just popped up and stuff. You know, I remember him for Glengarry Glen Ross and yeah. Argo mostly, but he's been in so many things. I I really loved his. The, uh, character of the psychiatrist in Gross Point Blank, which I watched yes. not so long ago actually on the uh, for this for this podcast. But yeah, yeah, he was uh, he's he's amazing in the, in that role as just a really nervous psychologist psychiatrist. But um, it, I'll have to watch some more of his films because I mean, he I probably watched him when he was in the six his sixties and seventies onwards, like the early roles I would not have seen. No, I mean I think he he was in he was in Catch Twenty Two, which I haven't seen in many years. So maybe return to that. Um, but yeah, his filmography is very varied. He was, and of course, he did. It wasn't just films as well. I think he was on stage as well. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So and no doubt theatre. He was very ubiquitous. But yeah, uh, sad, gone but not forgotten, and he lives forever in our regular game. The yes, which we'll, <laughs> which we'll get into the Arkansas, which we'll get into later on. Um, I had two comments from one of our. Well, someone actually doesn't listen to the show, but he, yeah. uh, one of our mutual friends, Alex, just sent me two messages that really tickled me, and I thought I'd mention them here. 
uh, I was <clears throat> it was really late one night and I woke up for like for like a pee at like two in the morning or something and I glanced at my phone and there was a message from him and it just said don't watch 10 by 10 it's not very good I thought I like how that was so pertinently that I have to, I have to say this to someone. Yeah, the I, chances of you actually watching a specific film are quite unlikely anyway. But it's that important that he has to make it clear not, not to. It, but I don't actually know. 2018 British American thriller directed by Susie Ewing, starring Luke Evans and Kelly Riley. I mean, it's, I suppose you might watch it because you fancy Luke Evans, but other than that, I'm not sure. I, do I fancy Luke Evans or do I fancy uh, Kelly Riley? I think both of them. <laughs> I fancy both of them. You're right. It was a trick question. <laughs> Actually, no, hang on. You fancy Luke Evans? Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, he, is he, he's not old enough to be in the bar, though. He's not. He's going to have to wait a few years. He's going to have to get some experience <laughs> under his belt. He's going to have to get some bags under his eyes. Speaking of which, I don't know if you remember that we were saying last, the Arkins bar, if people, you know, if where they would imagine it being set and... <laughs> Um, I've always kind of assumed New York because I think of I think so. uh, Edward Hopper's Nighthawks when I think about it, except much more modern and glassy. But um, we we did have two two people mention emailed in suggestions of where they thought it would be based. Mm-hmm. Uh, Max said he imagines it for some reason being in Reykjavik. Of course, um, so I just imagine it'd be so so cold. I just imagine everyone over this just Baltic. <laughs> Everyone's just constantly like, hugging each other for warmth and just shivering. I'm sure they're not. My only but, concern about putting it on a remote island is that people just naturally assume that we're running a paedophile ring. <laughs> unfortunate. I'm <laughs> yeah. so sure how many paedophile rings are run out of Iceland specifically. But What about um, what about uh, Utah Smith's suggestion, which was the Utah? Arkans Bar? No, yeah, yeah, which should be good. The Arkans Bar in Agrabah. Oh, Which, of course, like is a fictional Disney village. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Harkins Bar in Agrabah. It's a bit of... Actually, um, I was going to save this for later, but this kind of seeds into it quite nicely now. Is, uh, and I, I'm going to kind of demand that this becomes a weekly thing because Utah sent across another um, rhyming movie, Stephen Lang oh, clip. Oh, my God. And it, it, it is it is impressive. Like I kind of not knew, I knew it was coming, but I knew <laughs> sort of what to expect, like the structure of it. And I was still blown away by this. So this is uh, this is um, the movie rhyming Stephen Lang <laughs> from uh, Utah Smith. Just in the hot tub, I'm on a glass of wine, and I haven't really been thinking about it. But oh no, that is sorry, my bad. He sends me so many. That's actually his. Um, is Arkansas entry for this 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 is the movie around with Stephen Lang. Okay. So when I was Christopher Walken to my Jimmy Carr, which by the way is a classic 1984 Tom Green Harrison Ford Michael Cera, which by the way is uh, Tom Cruise control. I uh, Amber Heard of Kurt Russell and the Kate Bushes and the Mr. T's. I was immediately on my Alexander Skarsgård. Thought it's Chris Hemsworth. I think it was just a Megan Fox, but I couldn't really be poorly sure because I'd lost my Michael Douglases. <laughs> Anyway, I was going to Christopher McDonald's to get a happy Emil Hirsch, but um, they point Billy Blank refused me because I wasn't nearly young enough and Danny DeVito the whole thing. I shall be uh, Sean penning a very Howard Stern Ricky email to that clown. There's so many. <laughs> that so- is astonishing. It's literally, I think it's getting towards the point where 
he'll be able to construct an entire like speech monologue purely out of names. Like there are no <laughs> other words needed. No combining words. <laughs> no connective I... tissue whatsoever. I lo- and I love how it's like some of it's rhyming slang, some of it's just the words. Like get into my Jimmy car. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have my Michael Douglases. <laughs> that was my favourite one. <laughs> Douglases. <laughs> So I mean, hopefully one day he'll just come up with like a book, a full, a full six hundred page novel. It's just a list of names, and yet somehow it tells a story. Yeah, it tells a really bizarre story. Um, so yeah, high five again to Utah. If we can Brilliant. do that in thirty second intervals every every episode, that'd be grand. Um, I get, I guess. Uh, oh, another thing I want to mention before we sort of go into um, the the. the uh, movie stuff, the movie stuff of the podcast, if you will. Um, I was well. Two things actually. One is uh, Alex, the same person, watched "Don't Worry, My Darling," a film you reviewed on the podcast a couple oh, yeah. of episodes ago. With um, he doesn't listen to the podcast. Um, well, actually, I think he listens to parts of the one I suggest, like the um, he listened to the the horror monologue with the, the lots of snooker in jokes in it. He enjoyed that. Mm. But um, he, he there, did text me about "Don't Worry, Darling," and. Um, his opinion seemed to dovetail quite a lot with mine. So. Absolutely. He sent me a voicemail and I was just listening to it. And, and I don't think he realized that Harry Styles was kind of recast over uh, Shia LaBeouf because he was saying to imagine uh, Jake Gyllenhaal in the role. And mm-hmm. I said, it's weird you should say that because, and I explained the whole thing. And, um, yeah, he, he basically, it was parroted exactly what you said, which was kind of interesting. Yeah, it was a... Uh... It was a pity with the old Harry Styles thing, because it, I mean, it's not that he was bad, but the trouble is he's surrounded by a lot better actors and it's a particular role which requires a lot of range, you know. Uh, so, yeah, it was it wasn't ideal. It was a bit like in at the deep end type thing. Uh, but, yeah, it would have been I would have liked to see the Charlotte Booth version, to be honest. Um. And the other thing, the other thing I wanted to say, one of the films I'm going to talk about tonight, I'm, I was watching it and the word attorney popped up in it. And it's a word you hear all the time in American films. But do you have, for some reason, it actually is. Yeah, no, no, I know what it is. But I, you know, words that give you a mental image. um, Okay, yeah, yeah. And every time I hear the word attorney, my mind instantly just flashes up an image of a thin slice of beef in really watery gravy. Every time I hear the word attorney, I think oh, I could do some beef. <laughs> that see, I thought what you meant was it, it. It makes you conjure a picture of a specific person, like it's a, like a guy in a suit or something like that. But no, you're talking yeah. about an actual just slice of meat and some gravy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that also well, makes sense. Did, did you have anything like that? You hear a certain word, and it, it maybe it's like something from my childhood. It just pops up a weird image that was not related to the word at all. No, but I do get something when this is weird. But when I'm at work and I'm, I'm I I go into a certain screen that I go into quite a lot, sort of thing, and like say Dex hamster, but yeah, carry on. Yeah, but like oh, and I type a password or something, or or type something in that I always do, and and it's weird. Every every time I do it, I get like a specific image. Uh, or like a memory it triggers like a memory of something completely unrelated it's so weird it's like that little pathway in my brain is like triggered some memory of i don't know like a specific place from my childhood and i and i picture myself back there it's really already odd 
the brain is a mysterious thing. But that the image when you get thrown back to it, when you look on the floor, is there a slice of pre-cooked beef and some gravy? <laughs> no. Is no, this all a, we- a web of thought that the entire world can be linked through? No, it's just I actually, it's me waking up in a cold sweat and seeing a shadow in the doorway. It's really odd. No, <laughs> oh, really? I mean, it seems like a completely innocuous memory. I don't know what's And when you pop on your glasses and you squint, does it actually realise it's actually Barry McGuigan in full boxing <laughs> again, da- dancing between two panes of glass that are squeezing him? <laughs> it's not that, is it? Uh, <laughs> not specifically, no, it's not Barry McGuigan. I love how we cater to our American audience. <laughs> Hello, Americans. Right then. So, what have you got in your pants? How many How many films have you got down your trousers, mate? I think I've only got five this week. I think that's the amount I have as well. So this works up nicely. And um, we're there. One, two, three, four, five, six. So, yeah. So, um, one, do you, uh, shall I kick off? Yeah, this is a big time. This is a TMT. Let me just close this window on Luke Evans and talk about gang-related, alternatively known as Criminal Intent, a 1997 action crime thriller written by Jim Koof and starring, of course, James Belushi, Tupac Shakur. It says starring Dennis Quaid. I, I don't know. I <laughs> that. Um, so this is a, a mid-90s cop thriller uh, about two corrupt cops played by um, James Belushi and... Um, Frank Da Vinci and Jake Rodriguez. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, before we go into it, I this was one of the films that I watched a couple of times when I was in the in the worked in the video store. And it, when I watched it at the time, I would have been thirteen or fourteen. I remember it striking me as quite a hard nosed thriller, like quite a full on, like oh, this is this is heavy duty. Um, <clears throat> watching it now, I didn't have quite the same reactions to it. Mm-hmm. But I was trying to. What it did remind me of as I was watching the film was that I, when Tupac died, it seemed to be this huge wave of mourning across the yeah. world. I am completely ignorant. To, like I know he was a rapper, and I, I know him more from his films, to be honest, and his images on T-shirts. Um, but what what was he huge? Was he like a cultural phenomenon? And if so, why? Because this is completely out of my wheelhouse. He was. Uh, a cultural phenomenon, yes. Um, but I, I, I'm, I don't know rap. I don't know gangster rap. I don't really understand the appeal myself. But he was definitely a very big deal at the time. Yeah, and maybe I, I was the just... violent nature of his death, because wasn't it was all like a gang related issue, wasn't it? It's not like he was. It wasn't standard uh, celebrity stuff of like slipping in a bar. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, slipping yeah. on a ping pong ball and hitting your head on a fluffy clown. No. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah. Well, it, it, was a, it was a big deal. Um, but he wasn't much of an actor, and yeah. But I can't really speak to his music. Um, yeah, I just wondered if I was kind of retroactively changing that in my mind, but I just remember it being a huge. Same with Bob Marley, like this huge. Everyone was gutted, apart from me, who was just slightly confused. A bit like when I'm in bed, really, in the middle of an orgy. Um, and so, yeah, Frank Da Vinci and Jake Rodriguez. Uh, it's the film starts off, and they are you don't know the cops. They they're in a a horrible little motel, and someone comes in, and they he sells them drugs, and then they follow him, and then sort of just pull up against him again on a motorway and just blow him away, and then steal the drugs and money back off him, and 
you, you assume that's just how they make their money. But then, it, of course, they're police, extremely corrupt policemen. Um, then they go in and what happens is they find out that guy they shot was actually an undercover cop trying to prove that they are dirty. And they, they're like, ah, <laughs> ah, right. Yeah. So, of course, that causes a problem. And then they it goes around. They say it's just a typical gang related killing and then internal affairs are on their asses. And it's them trying to cover themselves, basically, in a really corrupt way. And it, it comes across as a, almost like a really uneven comedy that takes a turn halfway through. Because James Belushi is, and <laughs> we'll say this again on this podcast, he's miscast in this film. Because, of course, he's kind of like, in all of his films, like when you think of like Kanan, he's kind of an amiable, bumbling Chicago cop sort of thing. And yeah. he works for that. Sort of here. an oaf. Yes, like a bumbling oaf. Um, but in this, he's meant to be someone who is quite threatening and mm. is just completely corrupt. But he can't stop being like winking at the camera. So it's a really uneven performance. Whereas Tupac, on the other side of it, is playing it pretty straight. So, but they're both extremely corrupt to the point of like when they when they find out that they they've killed someone, they need to plant a gun on someone. So they basically just go through all of the ethnic minorities and just bring them in. And just try to blame it on them. And they've all got... It's quite a funny sequence, actually, where they just... They say, we're just going to go out and find the guy. We know who it is. And then they mm. just bring in this this Hispanic guy. And then just say, oh, can you hold this for a minute? And he holds the gun. And then they just say, thank you. And take it back off him with the cloth. <laughs> just so he's got his fingerprints on it blatantly in the interrogation room. <laughs> Put it in, like, a plastic bag and say, oh, where were you, like, two nights ago? And it turns out that he was in prison uh, overnight for, like, slapping his wife. Uh, so he's like, unlucky, you can't pin her on me. And then it cuts to them bringing in like a black guy and they slide the gun across the desk and he touches it and then sort of sighs like, oh, I realise what I've done. This slides it back. They put it in the bag. Where were you two days ago? And he was in hospital having, his, having like a hernia removed or something and they sigh and then he gets out. And then they bring in like another guy, um, like an Italian guy, and uh, and they slide the gun across the table and he like picks it up with his shirt and then like wipes it all off. <laughs> As it like, and they sort of sigh, like, okay, he's seen through that bit. And then they say, where were you? And he just openly admits to, like, a jewellery store robbery uh, because he says, I'd rather have three to five than 12 to life for killing a cop. And they're like, uh-huh. So they let him go as well. Um, and in the end, they pin the, the murder on this just a homeless bloke. Uh, like, a, 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 he's... <laughs> I've seen homeless blokes in films before. I'm quite... I would... <laughs> I feel quite comfortable in saying that this is the most homeless man I've ever encountered in outside of the movie medium. When you see him, he's he's lying on his back. When you first see him, he's just going ah, ah, making these like animalistic sounds, lying on his back in the middle of an intersection in the rain, just like sort of moving his arms and legs, going ah, ah, and giggling. And I thought that man has not got a full diary. Um, and and like a prostitute, kind of like a prostitute, like get up, John, and just kind of kicks him to the curb, and he just falls asleep in a rainy gutter. I thought he is comfortable. Um, but of course, it turns out, Rupert, would you would you credit it that when they pin this the, the murder on this guy, they shave him and uh, you know give him a bath, and uh, they realise, oh, hang on, he's that really upstanding, uh, so upstanding doctor known throughout <laughs> the entire city that uh, went missing a few years ago. Now you've brought him back. Yeah, completely likely. Um. And bizarrely, this is the point when when they plant the gun on him, all the things they've done, like like going out and they're like they're just like slapping prostitutes around, just cheating on their wives. That part of the plot's really unclear. I didn't even know if they were married or if they were just having just shagging women or not. I didn't didn't quite understand that. 
but like shooting just shooting people like false arrests and that even the commander's just like oh i don't care what i'm just make it stick just get ia off my ass uh so like everything is corrupt and then it's at this point when they realize that the gun they've stolen out of the evidence to plant on this homeless guy turns out to be dennis quaid it's like wasn't he in inner space um they this gun they've stolen from the evidence lockup makes this is the key piece of evidence in another case for this sort of um, family murderer, and it allows him to go free. And that's when Tupac's like, oh, I think we might have gone a bit too far with this. And I thought, that's kind of art. That's an arbitrary decision you've just made, isn't it? From like that, and from then on, he's just like a goody two shoes, totally and utterly goody two shoes. And I thought, well, I don't believe this anyway, because that's just that's really lazy. There was no like gradual, like you're just as foul as James Evolution. All of a sudden, this one thing is like, oh, this is too far, and I'm going to completely re- recant everything. But also. Um, it's completely self-serving as well. It's mm. only because he realizes that, like, if they get caught out, he's going down as well. So he's only doing it, going against James Lewis to save himself. But he's made out as if he's this sort of, he's like, this, this sort of sacrifice. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's a funny little. I don't want to. It's worth a watch because it is oddly amusing, and it's James Lewis is just miscast. But there's a there's a, there's kind of a funny little, a tiny. I won't call it a twist, but a little reveal at the end, which is quite funny. Um, <coughs> but um, it wasn't as it wasn't as heavy duty as I remember. It's quite a silly film, and it's probably one of only a handful that Tupac is in, I guess. So yeah, I, don't, I think he's in a few films like Juice and things like that. But, uh, I think this was the one that was. I think this was film the finish the filming finished two weeks before he was shot. Jeez, yeah. So uh, yeah, he yeah. Uh, he sold a lot of albums, definitely. So like millions and millions so he was a big deal but i i just didn't really i didn't really know what it was about it didn't really affect me oh um, that's weird you say millions and millions of albums i it is weird because i've i've been making the mistake all this time then for the last 39 years that you count the amount of something in lengths of time <laughs> so that's really cleared up a lot of awkward conversations i've had in the past yeah things must have got nonsensical um so did uh what's what is the explanation then do you think why is it that you thought this was a gritty film and now it seems like it's some sort of miscast comedy i think it's because when i watched it at the time i i think i find as a kid i think i found police and gangsters frightening because yeah. it, it just seemed really i think i i, I found the idea of like tr- true lawlessness quite yeah. frightening like i was I had a recurring nightmare as a kid that I would, I'd like accidentally kill someone or something, and then I would just get thrown into jail for something I didn't do. But obviously, mm-hmm. th- th- that thought isn't really on my mind now. But I think I, I, I thought, imagine if like you couldn't go to the police or something, or you know, or if if you you could just get called in for something and then just thrown in jail and that's it, and you've got no recourse against it. But now I, I see through that as an adult. You think, no, oh, this it's is quite okay. unlikely to happen. Really, no. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think if I was. I think obviously if I was a fan of rap, I would have seen this many times over the years because it is just one of the, you know, one of a handful of films, I guess, Tupac was in. But um, it would just be better if James Belushi wasn't in it. <laughs> Tupac was young when he died as well. He's only like 25, I think. Really? Um, <clears throat> yeah. Um, and yes, it yet is here at Franked Boff, isn't it? <laughs> i watched Frank- a lot of horror films. Franked Boff. Um... <laughs> Frank Deboff. <laughs> um, right. Okay. So, should I watch it then? Uh, is, is it called again? 
was gang related. It's, it's on as Prime as also gang known across it is. What's it also known as? Yeah, was there another one? Did you say there's another title? Yeah, it's Acts of Vengeance. Oh, I've okay. gone off the screen. Jesus. Oh, Criminal Intent. Acts of Vengeance. <laughs> Different words. Just like, just like generic movie name generator, isn't it? Um, you, by the way, have you watched Extraction 2? I have, and I, that is one of the films on my list this week. Cool, yes. okay, we'll, we'll talk about that again. That's fine then. Cool. Uh, I, so I watched uh, Akira, which is on Netflix, but I watched the 4K version, which I got for my birthday. Thank you very much. Thank from Germany, much. was it? No, this was uh, from my uh, brother. Has he got a nickname, or do we just call him his real name? I can't remember. Wh- which brother? Uh, Max. <laughs> <laughs> this is the guy I just named. Well, I led you down that corridor, didn't I? Well, if we, call it, we say his name's Maximilian, then I'll throw people. Um, right, yes, yeah, so Akira, yes, this is a 1988 anime sci-fi epic written and directed by Katsuhiro Otomo based on his manga comic book saga and it's quite a, well, a very uh, influential uh, anime animated film and it it's certainly credited with popularizing modern anime in the West anyway, and it inspired a lot of Hollywood sci-fi action movies since then, like um, obviously stuff like The Matrix, things like that, but also other anime like Ghost in the Shell, Pat Labor, Venus Wars, Battle Angel Alita, which of course was a couple of them were remade as Hollywood movies themselves. So yes, Akira, it is... Did say Pat Labor? Pat Labor, yes. That just sounds like someone's name from Yorkshire. Sucks. I know. But Pat Labour 2 is a really, really good, quite beautiful animation, actually. First one's like, meh. Second one's amazing. Um, but, again, these are so hard to get hold of these days since manga video went under. Um, so, yeah, the, Akira is set in uh, cyberpunky Neo-Tokyo. It's 30 years after World War III. And I... If I get the timeline right, World War Three happened in the late 80s, naturally. Um, so 30 years later, this teenager named Tetsuo, or Tetsu, is snatched from a biker gang and brought in for covert scientific experiments. And it turns out he's one of a long line of youngsters possessing enormous latent power. Uh, one of these youngsters was Akira, the most legendary power of them all, and possibly the cause of the of world war three but now akira is buried under the olympic stadium in tokyo which is actually quite prescient because japan did actually host the 2020 olympics um but yeah tetsu wants uh, to unlock his own rage and potential his own power and he means to do so by unleashing akira upon the world again if he wants to unleash his inner rage why doesn't he just sign up with virgin broadband <laughs> exactly yeah or try and stream a film on Rakuten, the worst streaming service for film. <laughs> and now emblazoned on one of my t-shirts. Good. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. So there are various parties trying to stop Tetsu, naturally. Um, his best buddy, Canada. Um, and there's also this conflicted army colonel and there's this group of revolutionaries and they're fighting the self-serving government and there's these crazed religious fanatics praying for the purging of civilization 
And then there's the scientists who are irresponsibly trying to harness Tetsu's power for themselves. So there's a lot of competing interests, but essentially it's a big scale apocalyptic action movie where this kid with unbridled power just trashes everything in sight. And it holds up in large part because of its production values, I'd say. And I mean, I watched a lot of manga video releases back in my youth and a lot of them were pretty basic and cheap looking. Um, they a lot of them would have a lot of an imagination, but the production values wouldn't be there. But this one's got it. Um, it also benefits when it doesn't really have that awkward, hypersexualized uh, element that a lot of its peers do. You know, like films like Wicked City and Ninja Scroll, and of course Hirotsuka Doji. But things like Wicked City and Ninja Scroll, especially, like were so cool and they had such awesome monster designs. But then they just they just get a bit rapey. And it's like, oh, that's mm. put me off a little bit. And it's, it, one of my absolute favourite anime movies is The Wings of Honey Armies, which is this gorgeous, like, quite wholesome, the right stuff type um, film about uh, the first steps into space flight. And it's such a, like an innocent <laughs> film. But then, of course, there's just a completely incongruous rape scene in the middle of it for no reason. It's like, why? Why do you have to do it? Yeah, it is part of the culture that I could do without. I mean, it's the same thing. I, I really loved um, when I when I was growing up. The, the the kind of anime that I really liked was stuff like, um, like as you said, Ninja Scroll and Devilman, uh, yeah. Violence Jack, all that sort of stuff. But of course, they just can't. They can't help it. They can't help getting weird. And you think, can you just wind it in? <laughs> yeah, but Kira, thankfully, it does avoid most of that stuff. And I've I've always loved Akira, even though I'm not sure 100 percent understand it like i'm not sure why tetsu is so drawn to akira i i can't don't know why he can't realize his own power uh it's but i kind of like how the film is sort of simple on the surface and just an action movie and very propulsive but it's sort of a bit elusive on the other hand so you kind of every time you watch it like unlocking a piece of the puzzle and i love the atmosphere it really nails the sense of a society on the absolute brink of isn't there, isn't there a lot of like people people screaming uh, and then like sort of flashing lights behind them though uh, or, or, or like screaming and jumping and they're just yeah, being very like, high. not so much there's a bit towards the end when it goes a bit over the top but most of it's pretty grounded really and most of the chaos is just crowds of people kind of being consumed by the destruction that is going on in tokyo and, and it you know every level of society is breaking down and the streets are totally lost and the politicians are bought off and the army is totally helpless and it is very violent and serious but it, it's kind of goofy at the same time and i think it's well it feels unusual to me that the he the main hero the, can the canada character is sort of the biggest slapstick goof of the entire cast maybe that's not unusual in anime but it seems unusual to me and i just think the fact that it's um otomo himself who obviously writes and directs the movie, but also did the original manga comic. He, like, it's got such a level of control about it. He has such confidence in his narrative. And by all accounts, I mean, he's cutting out a hell of a lot of his narrative because there's many, many books. But um, he's so confident in and controlled in his material. Because so by the end, you've got scenes of, like, city-scale destruction intercut with these very very soft intimate flashback scenes and it's quite odd um, but it works and I, I also need to draw particular attention to the musical score 
which is by Shoji Yamashiro. And I've no idea what kind of music it is, really, but it's sort of like it sounds like it blends synth and industrial rock and epic choral chanting and traditional Japanese drums. And it's completely unlike anything I've ever heard before or since. But unfortunately, you can't get it on Spotify. You'd have to you can search for Akira Symphonic Suite on YouTube. But it's just incredible music. So weird and varied and uh, original. And I think, yeah, so I think Akira is still the best adult anime I've seen. It looks amazing. Pacing's perfect. It's atmospheric and exciting and actually quite thought-provoking. And I guess on that topic, we should probably acknowledge that the manga series itself was written like 30 years after World War II. And of course, so therefore after Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And I think Akira is undoubtedly dealing with like Japanese national trauma, I'd say. And it does. So I think in the end, in a quite forward facing and hopeful and quite wholesome way. So uh, it's a very, very cool movie. There was a video game, by the way, on the Amiga of Akira. And if you ever got to play this one, it got 16% in Amiga power. So, <laughs> so that's not very good, is it? That's no, low. It's low. Yeah. I'm intrigued to find out what it looks like, though. But it's probably going to look a nice title screen. <laughs> probably, probably best to watch Akira the movie before going and watching a long play of Akira the video game on the Amiga 500. Um, I might watch that. I mean, how, how long is it? I remember it feeling like it was long. I think again, I watched this, and I think after, I don't know. I remember just being confused by it. But I've got a feeling I either watched it when I was a teenager, a quite young teenager, or I watched it when I was quite drunk. So maybe I need to watch it again and just keep up with yeah, it. I'd say it is moderately confusing. Another thing which I should really mention that, is it, that it doesn't have is that tedious verbosity that you get in a lot of anime sci-fi. Like Ghost in the Shell is just unrelenting exposition, you know, and it's just so tedious to watch. Uh but it doesn't really have that either. That's what I mean about the pacing is unusually like brisk for a film of this scale. Yeah, I, I think I will watch this. So is this um, is this streaming anywhere? I think it's on Netflix. I might watch I this. I think it's well, for the best. With um, you said manga video has gone under, is it? I think it did go under. I think it might have. Has it got something to do with Crunchyroll now or something like that? I it got subsumed into something else. But I I mean, there are so many movies from that period that I really would like to see somewhere, but I just don't know where to watch them. Like quite obscure um, anime films like Space Adventure Cobra and things like that. I think I mentioned Space Adventure Cobra before, actually, because that one's a real pisser because not only is it quite hard to come by, but also it had originally had a soundtrack by Yellow, who are a really cool, innovative 80s synth band. But they, but more recent versions of the film don't have the license to the Yellow music, so they just had generic other music put in there, which is a real pity, because it was all part of it to have this, like, crazy 80s sci-fi movie with this weird, like, synth-pop soundtrack. It's a lot. <laughs> with them... Um... Yeah, I think I will. I will watch that. Speaking of soundtracks, that leads quite nicely into my next film, which is um, Chuck Norris's 1985 
code of silence. Um, this is quite. I didn't. I just fancied watching because I, I don't think I'd seen a good Chuck Norris film, and ever. And he, it, well, I think. Well, obviously you've got like Lone Wolf and McQuaid and stuff like that, but I haven't watched a very good one in a while. <clears throat> and I thought I'll chuck this on. Um, and it's. I didn't realize this, but it's it's a cop film as opposed to a like a kung fu movie. Um, he he plays uh, Sergeant Eddie Cusack, who is a, a sort of a cop who's pretty plain as clothes and wanders around the streets uh, in drug sting operations, taking taking down the baddies. And at the start, uh, in one of these sting operations, a drug runner's brother gets killed, and so the the brother, played by of course Henry Silver, uh, sort of says he's going to uh, take down Eddie Cusack. It's another one of those films where everyone is corrupt, seemingly apart from Chuck Norris. Um, <clears throat> but this is filmed. The, the genius of this film was one I didn't even see. I don't even know if it came up at the start with the names of the people in the film, but I just mm-hmm. kept, kept on noticing people throughout it. Like it started off, and I, the first thing I noticed was the music, which, you know, I, can imagine, I wish I was there at the meeting when they said, right, we need to get. It's Chicago, so it's the home of the blues. Uh, we need to at the start. There's going to be a load of undercover cops pretending to be bin men, uh, much like in Last Year's Commando, and they're going to sort of hang around this apartment building with this drug operation that's going to go on. So what are we going to? And then the music man said, da, 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 "Pass me that slap bass," and that is what happened. And <laughs> the music in it is generally brilliant because it starts off and it's it, it's like just awesome slap bass, and then in a couple of other things it'll just be like bending sort of like clean bluesy guitar and then it'll just be some drums or a little bit of synth sometimes it's just be the, you know those low piano notes in the yeah. 10 sequences where it goes on the sort of single low notes on a piano mm-hmm. and i was completely on board with the whole thing i thought this is brilliant the music's oddly varied <clears throat> and also dennis farina's in it as his first he was still a police officer in this film and he turns up uh, as like one of the other sort of true blue cops on chuck norris's side and also yes they're trying to build a crime fighting robot like robocop but it just looks more like bloody rob the robot on the nintendo (laughs) and the person controlling it turns around to the screen the scientist boom it's john mahoney don't you worry about that i was was having a way i was loving the music and of course it's like a really gritty new yorky dirty chicago so it's all like lots of steam coming out of out of drains and loads of bins everywhere i was thinking good good this is this is mid-80s america um uh and chuck norris's kind of blankness works for him in this because he is just dismayed at the um the sheer corruption going on about him like at the start one of the there's a, an older guy on the force who they're, they're chasing someone through an apartment complex and someone comes out like a kid comes out just to see what's going on and he just he just shoots him square in the chest and kills him and as the mother and and, the, and his like sister are screaming and just standing in the hallway screaming what happens like the police officer just runs and pushes them up the way and just like plants a gun on the kid and then says, oh, he's got a gun, and then turns around, and his and his, his partner's really young. He's like, did you see that? Did you see that? He's like, y- y- yeah. Jesus, yeah, James Belushi. Um, <laughs> yeah. But um, he would have been better cast in this. Um, and it's just basically Chuck Norris spending 90 minutes walking around, very occasionally kicking people in the face with tight jeans on, and just shaking his head every time he sees anyone do anything a bit naughty. But it's should've quite good. some fighting trousers, shouldn't he? <laughs> he should have put on his joggers. But it's quite, it's quite a good... 
just simple 80s thriller like cop thriller Good. and uh, i was quite surprised um, there's a sequence at the end that well, i because i was aware that there was no fighting in it it's just him going around shaking his head whenever anyone's corrupt but he goes into a bar to get information he walks down these steps wearing the tightest jeans you've ever seen and there is about 40 men in this like underground pool bar and he just has a go at them and fair play he's, he takes down about 25 of them before they eventually overpower him but it does that thing where they're all just sort of circling and waiting for their turn and you think yeah, it's if classic. he swarmed him he'd be dead um but no it's uh yeah it's quite leads up to a big old big old um shoot it at the end involving the robot you've got john mahoney you've got henry silver you've got dennis freena you've got awesome music and it is directed by andrew davis who went on to do awesome movies like fugitive above the law um chain reaction perfect murder the guardian <laughs> middling 90s actual just, okay just legal yeah <laughs> so um, yeah is it as good as the delta force i think that bear in mind good. that delta force has robert <laughs> forster as an iranian terrorist in blackface <laughs> I was talking about that because when I was talking to my parents about a code of silence. Oh, miscast. People big miscast. Robert Forster is an Iranian terrorist. <laughs> my mum was like, oh, my favourite Chet Norris film was Invasion USA. So that, that, film is, that film is bonkers. Truly bonkers. <laughs> it's so xenophobic. It's like, <laughs> it's it's bad reaction, right? No, no, no one trusts anyone that's further, lived, was born further away than their own garden. Uh, so, yeah, it's... Um, but I, yeah, I, I did like Code of Silence, and it's well filmed, and it makes sense that it, Andrew okay. Davis went on to make stuff like The Fugitive. So yeah, definitely recommendation. That's always good, isn't it? I mean, sometimes that's the that's the answer, isn't it? If you want to find, uh, if you want to find quality like early trash, then find a good director now and see what they did early on, sort of thing, because you you could often see the seeds of quality. Well, David Michael Frank, who did the music for this, I was really mm. taken by it, and I was looking at his credits, and he was like above the law, Forrest Gump, he did some work in The mm. Mask, Slapper, she's French, which is just a brilliant title, um, Hard to Kill, Perfect, so lots of like cool 80s, 90s movies, Tank Girl, obviously, um, so yeah, there's, um, yeah, I was impressed with this, and, it, and I thought, yeah, now I want to watch The Fugitive again, and now I want to see the other music, or hear rather, uh, David Michael Frank's other music as well. What is that? Uh, where is that? It's Prime. I take you, know, you know it's Prime. It's Prime. Also on Prime, I watched The Whale. Uh, oh, this is the Brendan Fraser movie. It is. Um, and this is Darren Aronofsky's latest film. It's a, it's a character drama based on a stage play about a morbidly obese man in potentially the last week of his life, basically getting his affairs in order. And those affairs include uh, this somewhat angry visiting nurse, an even angrier teenage daughter, a slightly less angry ex-wife, and a wandering missionary, uh, but who does have latent anger issues as well. And yes, the title character, if you like, is played by Brendan, and who's who's. I will say his nice guy image has been slightly tastelessly leveraged for the marketing of this film, I would say. Like, as if they're trying to reflect some of the characters, like, doe-eyed, angelic nature in the actor who actually plays him, and it feels a bit creepy to me. But also, it made me think, because there was a lot of... Uh, there was a lot of stuff online about how what a nice guy is, which is great, but... 
you know, is it such a rarity in Hollywood that someone, you know, that someone just being nice, we need to jump on it as if it's some kind of like disruption in the space time continuum that someone's actually not just a horrendous. When you say it like that, it, that's quite, it is quite depressing, isn't it? That, it is yeah. a bit sad, isn't it? Like, oh, that's a nice guy. It's like, yes, okay. Is that that rare? <laughs> anyway, this is a bit of a schmaltzy movie, I've got to say. I was quite disappointed by the whale. Uh, I mean, the music, for a start, schmaltz. It, it's just pining for sympathy the whole time. And it's got this absurdly like corner-cutting script, I'd say, where... Like characters will enter rooms in full flow and express their innermost thoughts in a very outspoken way. Uh, it's like they're performing for each other, or indeed, like they're performing on a stage, in fact, rather yeah, than just relating as human beings. And I think it is because it's based on a play, but they just don't come across as real people. And the whole film treats the whale, uh, treats him like an angel. But I just thought he may, might just be a, a, just a, a moderately decent man with nothing to do with his spare cash, to be honest, and a really major guilt complex. But the darker possibility is barely explored, really. It just kind of accepts that he's he is angelic. And and he has this whole insistence that his daughter, who's played by Sadie Sink, um, that she's amazing. Right. And he keeps using that word. And she's amazing. And he gives her way too much credit, frankly, because especially for her honesty, uh, and I use that in inverted commas, because basically he's, her honest, this so-called honesty, basically involves her being aggressively rude to everyone she meets, taking photos without their consent and then posting them on social media. That's her honesty, apparently. Right. Intensely irritating to me. But anyway, but that just makes it if if that's what's amazing to him, then I think, well, I distrust your judgment. And frankly, I distrust your moral barometer. Maybe you are just a fat arsehole after all. I don't know. It's just a thought. So anyway, so there's this running theme of honesty throughout the whole thing, uh, or specifically the lack of it in the world. If only everyone was more honest with each other, etc., which is kind of weird considering basically all but one of the characters in this thing is peculiar, peculiarly open and honest from their very first word. And the script literally runs on utterly brutal honesty. So it's a bit weird to make a big theme of like, oh, like all this missing honesty in the world when it's everyone's being ridiculously, absurdly, unrealistically honest with each other. It doesn't make sense. Anyway, so it's nicely directed and nicely lit. And I like how it's like a four by three framing thing which makes it feel quite claustrophobic because it's all set in one house basically and so of course it's well made because it's darren aronofsky but i just think the script aggravated me and i and i the whole thing just lacks the usual edge you'd expect from aronofsky i, I uh, think w- when i think about and i know it's two different things you have a stylized version of things like wes anderson scripts that tickle me that like they, they kind of work and they resonate with me and then you've got like a really extremely realistic low key script of true mumbleness, uh, mumblecore awkwardness in something like um, computer chess, right? Which again, I completely works with me. Um, but I find certain films, what was the, you'll know this straight away. The, the one I watched recently with um, Adam driver in it. Uh, oh, the one uh, about the end of the world. 
Yes, yes. And I just, it was the same thing. People would walk in mid-conversation and they and it's almost like a, a verbal dance routine as, as the camera swirls around everything. And I thought, this just isn't isn't for me. I feel like I'm watching like a, it sounds stupid, but like I'm watching a performance, yeah. a constant performance as opposed to getting involved in everything. Like I constantly feel like I, I I'm, people are trying to impress me. And yeah. it, I, after about, I think it was about halfway, three quarters of the way through, I just sort of, I kind of gave up on it. But um, is it, that with you, the case. This so is that also the case with this film for you, where it, like other people would watch this and think, "Oh my god, this is fantastic!" But you're just thinking, "This is just a load of unlikely people thrown in just to force the plot forward, to force the yeah. emotional resonance it's supposed to ha- it's supposed to have." Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't like I mean, the fault, like the fault in our stars. Yes. Yeah. The, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Definitely, they'd be people. Would, it it feels very worthy, which is not a compliment. But you know, when a film is reaching for, from the moment you see his like obviously horrendously distended body, I mean, it's all about. Um, well, he must be a good person then if he's this morbidly obese and this kind of sad and unwilling to be on camera. And constantly crying about his daughter and stuff like that. He must oh, be a good person. Oh, does he just like custard creams more than the next man? <laughs> I just, I just can't imagine that. Like what you said, because I, I know the poster is like a close-up of his sort of sad, big, wide, blue-eyed face. And I yeah. can just imagine, I can just imagine if like if I found that in um in HMV and I looked at it and it and it said, the whale, a fat asshole. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I think that's why as well. It, it's almost like the marketing for it, with all of the kind of nice guy Brendan type stuff. I know here's a comeback type thing, which is all marketing, you know. And it that kind of dovetailed uncomfortably with my watching of the film, where it's like it's like it's that that image, that perception is meant to in some way kind of be imbued in the character himself so it's almost like it comes you're watching the movie and you just assume that he's a decent person uh and you just it's meant to accept it and i'm like well you're not exploring this like why is he intending to give away all his money like it doesn't it doesn't explore any of this it just like is you're meant to take everything on face value it doesn't explore the darker possibilities of what he's of what he's doing or or just this, the possibility that he is just he's just wasted a life i don't know by just eating loads and neglecting his family does it show what he's eating is it anything like saucy oh he just eats a lot of pizza in one scene it's quite a depressing scene actually where he's just like right, hate eating and just like necking pizza and then just taking biscuits out of the drawer and just stuffing them down so it's yeah it's kind of gross yeah uh, but um, again, it's all done for sympathy. So you've got like this dreadfully like schmaltzy music in the background to kind of ease you along. So you know that you're meant to feel sad for him. Don't you dare feel any other emotion. <laughs> you pussy. Don't, don't even think if you're, about if you're not openly crying, you're a pussy. Um, exactly. I, yeah, I, I, get, I get the sense you don't like being manipulated when you watch no, a I film. Don't. No, and I don't, I don't like... It's almost like this is the kind of movie where you just look at the poster and you know you're meant to 
you're meant to be crying and then the whole film just kind of pushes you down that it, it pushes you down that path with guardrails either side so you can't possibly veer off it and i think i yeah. found it quite dull in that regard so and uh, yes not edgy at all not for considering aronofsky's made some proper weird films in the past i mean he's kind of dabbled in more mainstream stuff like the wrestler as well i suppose i mean maybe that's what he's going to do he's just going to do messed up stuff like the fountain and mother and then every other film is going to be a crowd pleaser like this one didn't please me for free on prime it is, yeah. I think it was. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to watch it because I'm kind of a step beyond that as well. Not only do I not like being in, sort of emotionally manipulated into sadness, but mm. I find myself very close to crying all the time anyway when I watch films. So I, I just, I, I, I especially wouldn't like it. I'd, I get, I'd get, I'd cry, and then I'd be angry at myself for watching it and making myself cry. I, yeah. I reserve my rights for cry. when I want to cry. I listen to Vic Chesner to, <laughs> I don't, or Tom Waits. I don't. I didn't watch films of Brandon Fraser, and I, oh no, I did nearly cry when I watched the third Mummy film. Jesus Christ! <laughs> it's just just when he's all the CGI. <laughs> <laughs> um, I every every time we we do an episode, I try to squeeze in um, some films that um, listeners such as uh, Jimmy Automatic and uh, my brother Transvaal have given me, and I've got through a few of them this time. And my God, the theme. Of uh, obviously this is this is my brother is the man who introduced me to Godfrey Ho, but um, the theme of the movies he's been giving me recently have been movies made by WWE studios. So, but, but, so not just starring wrestlers, but sometimes, and this is what I want to talk about with this one: not just not starring. Some of them don't have wrestlers in them; they're just produced by WWE. But there's no; it's just like a film they've produced, and, you, and I thought, well. Surely they'll be better than the wrestler, the films of the wrestlers in. But no, as this film proved, no, they're not. I, and I don't know. We'll go into that anyway. So Barricade, right? This is a 2012 film starring Eric McCormack, who played Will in Will and Grace. Um, I kind of, mm-hmm. I kind of half recognised him and half fancied him. But so the film starts off with him, and he is obviously got like a loving wife and two, and two two children, a boy and a girl, and something happens. And it cuts forward, cuts forward so poorly that I didn't know it had until about 10 minutes after the cut when someone referenced his dead wife. And I thought, oh, right, that was a flash forward, was it? I, wow. I thought it was just a cut to him going on holiday. Um, so, yeah, his wife's passed away through some unseen circumstance and he's become distant uh, to his children. And he is now going up to a, a remote cabin in sort of, it looks like the Canadian wilderness somewhere. And he stops on the way up to pick up some supplies and... Uh, the old sheriff who also runs the convenience store there, you know, has got a bit of a cough and he's saying, yeah, you know, take up some stuff because you might get snowed in. And then Eric McCormack gives him a little wink and says, oh, did you prep the house with, you know, everything I said? And the sheriff's like, yeah, you know, everything for the kids. you got mac and cheese, burgers, pizzas. And I thought, oh, not being a particularly good father in terms of the nutrition there, I see Eric. And, um, and then he just goes up to this cabin. They're like, there's no phone signal this is shit why are we here and he's like oh that'd be great and uh and again there's no forward planning it's like just because your mother wanted to come in she was like doesn't mean the kids are going to suddenly like feel closer to her or enjoy it if they're like 
millennials effectively they, like why, why would they want to sit in a cabin playing ludo <laughs> um, with a depressed dad um so yeah what happens is all the families start to get ill and things start happening they they, they they're not sure if there's they, well they, they're not sure what it is but they keep on seeing sort of shapes running by the windows and banging and rattling things and they're all running around this house and uh they end up getting very ill and uh at one point the sheriff knocks on the door and says to Eric Coma, you know the storm has been gone for days what are you, why are you still here why haven't you left sort of thing and then he just gets sucked into the sky like in the forgotten with Julia, julianne moore i thought mm. oh okay i didn't expect that so this is like an alien thing is it um and i'm just going to spoil the film because no one should watch this piece of shit and it and the film is really really boring and what and uh, i'll backtrack so at the end it turns out that he he thinks that his kids have died and he's mourning them leaning by they're so ill that he's they passed away they couldn't you know the car was snowed in they were stuck you know all these weird goings on and he is sort of mourning them in this by the side of this bed they're in and then all of a sudden he turns around and there's just the police are there saying oh sir sit away from them and the, the kids are okay they're just sleeping and he's just like what and the house is fine all, all the sort of the, the titular barricading that's gone on hasn't happened and and then the, the sheriff says oh yeah he, um you i came to the door and you just locked me in the basement and they said the police say, well, do you want us to arrest him for that? That's kidnapping. And then the, the sheriff says, no, he'll get what's coming to him and walks off. And then there's a sequence where he's really happy and hugging his kids. I love you. I love you. I love you. And then he sort of pulls a face and it just cuts back to everything that's happened. And like him pulling up these barricades and them all having group hallucinations of seeing these things attacking the house and chasing them. But it's all really gentle. And and then he leaves. They leave the house and the sheriff repeats, he'll get what's coming to him. And I thought mm-hmm. that's a strange that's a strange thing to say because you've just been really helpful, but you're you're saying this sort of mumbling threats on your breath for some reason. Even you're an extremely old man who's like really close to the family. And then as the camera as the ambulance drives off through the snow, I realize what they'd done. Because the camera pans back to someone looking through the window and then the, the curtain drops in front of the window and it ends. And I thought, ah, I know what they've done. They've basically got multiple cuts of this film with they've clearly because uh. because it doesn't make sense any other way. They made this film. They had three cuts. They probably had like an alien cut. They probably had a cut because at the end, suddenly the wife's voice is like whispering and stuff, even though it's never really explained. They've got a ghostly cut and they've got a third cut, which is this cut, the worst, most gentle cut of him like <laughs> losing his mind. And that's the cut that doesn't hold up because at least because with that, there's no supernatural elements. But the rest of the film can't be explained without supernatural elements so or alien elements. So what you've got is the worst possible cut of an extremely boring, like bloodless, gutless film that doesn't make sense, but still has scenes in from other cuts of and versions of the film that would probably have been more gutsy and interesting. Ah, wow. That's impressive. Yeah. It, yeah, it was. And it was it clearly could not have been explained any other way. And I thought. It, it kept me intrigued up to a point, and then I realised they've gone too far here. It's, there's too many things happening that can't be explained now, unless it's literally just boom ghosts. So it, yeah, it just it felt a bit of a cop out, and and it brings me back to the main thing I want to talk about, which is why would a a company like WWE, like who worth nine billion dollars, why would they <laughs> make such a flat? Why would they see this script and think yes, we can we can make this because. 
there's no wrestlers in it, so the wrestling fans aren't going to watch her out of curiosity because the people they like are in it. It's just it's just a bad low budget horror. I don't. I was I was trying to work out the sort of mental machinations behind that decision. Easy money, I'd imagine. Low budget horror, you say? Yeah. Well, that's where the money is. When was it made? 2012. Hmm. Yeah, I suppose it would have been the start of the kind of the indie horror boom, I guess, wouldn't it? So, yeah, I can see that. But it's crap. Yeah, it's really. <laughs> this isn't one I would say, like, oh, if you're a fan, if you're a fan of Will and Grace. Um, no, it's just. The worst possible version of a crap film. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Impressive. It's um, it, so it's just it like it really doesn't add up, and it clearly doesn't add up for multiple <clears> reasons. That it, it's like they thought this is get the editing process is getting too complicated now. We don't know what we're doing. Let's just chuck an end in, put some scenes in, and, and people can then discuss it online. And and I did go online, and of course people people trying to just like make up their own plot sequences. Oh, oh, when he when he's wearing a certain when the collar on the left is sticking out of his jumper, it, it's it's when it's when it's really happening, and when it's tucked into it. No, it's not. It that's just bad continuity. It's just bad continuity <laughs> because this is a bad thelema. So not very good. That's astonishing. Right. Okay. <clears throat> well. Um, where is that? Uh, you got you got that on a physical. You know, video. you know, yeah. I got that from a DVD yeah, from a charity shop. For, yeah, I think it was no ten way. pence. <laughs> okay, see so in your Where local thrift store as we speak. Uh, what was it called again? Barricade. Okay, I'm going to talk about the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension, which is on freebie. Uh, oh, nice. Uh, and it's a sci-fi comedy thing, action thing from 1984. And uh, just to try and explain the plot, it, Buckaroo himself, he defies physics by driving a super-powered car through a mountain, uh, passing between the atoms or something like that. And in doing so, he glimpses a parallel dimension which is full of evil humanoid aliens from somewhere called Planet 10. And this causes a anyway this this event causes a rift which allows these oddly Jamaican aliens to enter the human world and try and destroy everything basically. So he and his band of weirdo buddies must save the world. These oddly Jamaican aliens are they called Toe Jam and Earl? <laughs> yes, weirdly I don't know where they got that from. If only it was just slap bass. I've got that on slap vinyl. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> really, cranky. Oh. Um, it hasn't been redone with real instruments, is it? It has by an American bassist called Co- Cody something, but he's a phenomenal bassist. It, it, it's literally an hour of slap bass, and some of the songs are so similar, but I cannot. I'll have to show you. Come up, it's pristine slap bass. It's perfect. So yeah. By all measures, I should really love this movie because I do love other silly and irreverent and weird semi-sci-fi fantasy movies from the 80s. I'm looking at things like uh, Repo Man, Miracle Mile, They Live. And actually, the director of this, Buckaroo Banzai, W.D. Richter, was even a writer on Big Trouble in Little China. And this is more akin to Big Trouble or in terms of tone. Uh, or possibly Hell Comes to Frogtown. And and it has an amazing cast. It's got Peter Weller. I was just about to say, this cast is phenomenal. Yeah. Jeff Goldblum, Clancy Brown, Ellen Barkin, John Lithgow, Christopher Lloyd. They're all there. So 
it, it is a mystery. Why do I find this film so tedious and irritating? And I think it's the same problem I had to a lesser extent with everything everywhere all at once. It has this abundance of ideas, a constant barrage of ideas, but that comes at the expense of any narrative discipline or sincerity. It's also not funny, which is a problem. And I guess they're aiming for some kind of Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon types adventure serial vibe. Um, but it's just really annoyingly self-aware in its zaniness and randomness. It's like that calculated fourth wall kind of brushing wackiness is quite tricky to pull off. And this is from like 1984. So it's way before like geek culture was mainstream before the nineties indie wave. So it is quite an oddity compared with, you know, audience winking bullshit. The it's standard today, but I will have to say you've got something like flash Gordon, which did manage to do it because it managed to find that balance. And I think flash Gordon worked because for all its campy silliness, it did stick to its own world with some rules in it. And it did have an underlying wholesomeness and earnestness that made it appealing. Plus, it had a bit of a budget, at least. So, and then you got Buckaroo Banzai, and the the, the final sequence almost picks up. It's kind of an extended action scene set in a warehouse, of course, and it does at <laughs> least pick up the pace. But it's a combination of like samey production design and bad editing. It just makes it all very confusing and frustrating to watch. So it never comes alive. It does. There is there are some quite charming practical and visual effects throughout the film, good makeup and model work. And I like how there's a teaser, almost like a teaser trailer for a fictional sequel at the end, which is quite innovative at the time. But you know what? It feels like it feels like it's a film whose only real purpose is to like play in the background in a trendy bar rather than actually be sat down and watched and enjoyed. You know what I mean? It's almost like it's its reputation precedes it. But then when you actually watch it, it's like it's not actually very enjoyable, is it? Clancy so, Brown is in this. I know. It's a it's a real pity because everything's there for a cult classic. But I don't know. It's like, you know, like we hate those types of like modern films where they're clearly trying to be kind of culty and old fashioned and it's all I've very seen Ready Player One. one. Yeah, I've seen Ready Player yeah. One. It's that kind of thing, but it, it's like that it's like that kind of very, very unappealing try hard attitude, but you know, forty years ago, which is surprising, but there you go. It's there and it's irritating. It was irritating then, it remains irritating now. So is, unfortunately Buckley Banzai is not a hidden gem. Is Clancy Brown in the Arkins bar? I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't think he. I fancy him, but I fancy he could be voice. running a barbecue outside on summer days or something. Well, no, I was thinking he could be introducing the sort of musicians, the jazz musicians. So you'd have on oh, approaching the stage now, ladies and gentlemen, that kind of thing. So you could do the yeah, the compare the sort MC of type thing. Okay, yeah, 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 that would work. You'd have him in there. I mean, I. He won't be getting any action from me, but he's welcome. Yeah, because he would say, oh, ladies and gentlemen, if you just welcome to the stage now, David Michael Frank. (laughs) 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 And then Tom Tom Waits alongside him singing away. It'd be amazing. 
Okay, that's a shame Slap because... Slap of Tom Waits, bloody hell. Is that the, is that the title of the, title of the episode you've just <laughs> got with me? just be. Uh, <laughs> are we ready to talk about Extraction 2 yet, or have we not got there? <laughs> We're not worried. I've, We're not got, I've got two of the films. Should we do that last? Okay, we'll do that last year. Sure. That's cool. Just sure. I've only got um, two myself, so we're good. Um, I well, you'll be pleased with this, Rupert. I watched Inside Out. Oh, okay, yes. No, so you didn't let me finish then. Not that one. Oh. I watched Inside Out from 2011. <laughs> Tri- Triple H, obviously, because yes, it's a WWE Studios movie. I'm just gonna hit you with some names now. You might want to grab onto your desk here, just so you don't get blown away when I say them. Paul Vec. Michael Rappaport, Parker Posey, Bruce Dern. Bloody hell. So, the film starts off, this is the first time, by the way, apart from Blade Trinity, that I've seen Triple H in a movie. Um, and he has got, you'd think, like, in wrestling, he's like a big character. You know, he's, got, he's, got, he's got gravitas in the ring and stuff, and he was a good wrestler, but and now, well, now he pretty much runs WWE. Um, but, this film, this film, um, he plays someone called AJ, uh, who has been in prison for 13 years for manslaughter. And he has, hang on, it says here in Angola. Where's Angola? Oh, right, Louisiana. That's a, no, yeah, that's what I was thinking. No, this is the one in Louisiana, apparently. I was thinking that. Why did they send it to Africa um, for giving someone a slap? So he, he's been in prison for 13 years and he comes out and he just wants to make pickles because he's become obsessed with making, you know, as in gherkins, big old gherkins uh, in prison. Uh, and he comes out and his best friend, Michael Rappaport, uh, obviously, is doing his whole um, Jewish, uh, nervous New York talk thing. And he is, they've been friends since they were kids, but it's very clear that Michael Rapport has just fallen into like just debt because his father played by Bruce Dern is a, uh, a loan shark effectively who works from inside of vets. Uh, and it's, that's just a front for his actual loan sharking. And he used to get uh, triple H and Michael Rapport out getting the money in and giving people a kicking and stuff. And when they come out, uh, he says to, he says to Michael Rapport, thanks for, you know, keeping me sane and um, sending me letters and visiting me and stuff. But um, I don't want to do that anymore. I just want to, get some money together and I want to make pickles. I'm obsessed with pickles. And yes. Michael Rappaport's like, oh yeah, well come and see my dad, see what happens. And the plot, uh, well, before that happens, he goes back to his house and it turns out, even though Michael Rappaport hasn't mentioned this, he, Michael Rappaport is now married to Parker Posey, who is a, uh, Triple H's lover and never visited him in prison. And bear in mind, he's been in prison for 13 years and they come out and she says, oh, this is this is our daughter, like Michael Rappaport, Parker Posey's daughter, mm. uh, Martha. She's 13. He doesn't okay. click. He doesn't click. Hang on. Hang on. That could be. And she's not a fast, nervous talk in New Yorker. Ginger New Yorker. Maybe it's mine. Um, that's that's for later on, that is. Uh, so what happens is they go out and he says, look, I'll come with you to this like loan shark and thing. We, you know, this collecting gig, but I'm just going to go to the bar, talk to our friend Carlo runs a bar and have a couple of drinks. And in the most contrived scene, I think I've ever seen in a movie, Michael Rapport is just like showing off in front of Triple H and sort of mm. Triple H is clearly not impressed, but he's like, can we just get out of here? Cause I want to go on my pickle farm or what I assume they're called pickle farms. Um, 
and my crap was like this really nervous guy's in there with like a briefcase with two hundred and fifty thousand dollars orders and he just gives it to him and says oh yeah here's the money for bruce dern and my crap was like oh no 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 and he starts like trying to frighten him and everyone in the in the bar is like can you just leave him alone like he's got the money stop showing off and then michael rapaport pulls out a gun and he's mm-hmm. like waving, waving the gun around and the guy's like can you be careful with a gun and he's like oh, yeah, i know what i'm doing and then he starts sneezing and he starts what? sneezing Right, sneezing. And it's sneezing in such a fake way that I thought it was a joke that he's like, haha, I'm pretending to sneeze. I don't know why, like, you know, I'm waving the gun and pretending to sneeze. But no, he's actually sneezing. And then he points the gun forward and sneezes and just shoots the bloke and kills him. And <laughs> it's an innocent like, mistake. We've all been there. We've all been there waving a gun around. And, and he's like instantly, oh, no, I didn't mean to do that. Oh, what have I done? Oh, and instantly turns back into like a sort of rambling pussy and Triple H has to step in and deal with it. And then they, they chuck the guy in the car and crush it in a junkyard and say, right, okay, I, I told you I didn't want to be doing this. You dragged me back into a load of shit again. I'm going to open a pickle farm. And then <laughs> the plot escalates from there. I say escalates. It doesn't really. Um, so what the film boils down to, right? is just a load of missed opportunities. So there's, there's no, they've got Triple H, who's a big physical specimen, and he just spends the whole time walking around really morosely, kind of head down, almost like, um, what was that film with Joaquin Phoenix in? You you were, you were never really here? Yeah. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Like, kind of, like, like, he, he's kind of meant to just be a bit of a nobody, like he doesn't want to yeah. be involved. He's a big, bl- so effectively he's miscast. And he's okay. just, and, and, I like Michael Rappaport in The Sixth Day and I liked him in Metro because in Metro actually he had more of a strong character but in this reason uh, you know uh, uh, remember when we were kids and we were uh, in that garden and you were uh, uh, and he does that for like 90 minutes and it's like this is really pushing my temperament now and um, Bruce Dern one point in the film Bruce Dern just says to Triple H can you just shoot him and and I was thinking as they were driving up. Why don't you sneeze or something and just shoot him? Yeah, just, just, just holding it in front of him and then tickle your nose with a feather and see what happens. Um, <laughs> wink, wink. Um, why don't you put your antihistamines in the bin and smell these flowers? Or wink. <laughs> yeah. Oh, why didn't you put this cat up against your face? Wink, wink. <laughs> yeah, whilst holding um, that double barrel shotgun. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was. It's quite clear that. Oh, by the way, the whole thing about pickles really pissed me off because when this started off, I found it quite amusing that he's, he keeps on saying, I just want to, can you just drop me off so I can do my pickle thing? And he, yeah. and when he talks about pickles, he's really passionate about them, talking about the flavours and like, well, so he's clearly yeah. really into his pickles. But the film ruins that joke by having people constantly eating pickles. So mm-hmm. like in one scene, Triple H comes downstairs, he's staying with Michael Rappaport and then he, he can hear something and he thinks it's a burglar and turns the light on and it's Parker Posey just like, eating a pickle in the middle of that show, I just fancied one. So no one does that. No one does that. Um, yeah, that's that's why it's kind of funny with Triple H because it's just, it's so gentle. And then yeah. that next morning, Michael Rapport wakes up after clocking a load of just mixed drinks and comes in. He's really buzzing, stumbling at himself because that's part of his character. He's just a total mess. Uh, and he opens the fridge and just eats a couple of pickles. And he's like, oh, mm. that feels good. And I thought you, no one would do that for a start. It would give you heartburn. And then... Like the the little girl comes home from school and she's eating pickles as well. It's like, what? well, you've kind yeah, of made the joke, joke flat. Seems worn you? out. Yeah, just you've worn it out. This conversation. Yeah, and so anyway, um, the film goes on, and I was thinking, God, this is really boring. It's just really boring bickering. And then about twenty minutes before the end, I don't know if it was a problem with the editing, but I, I had to rewind it. It's like, what's happening now? Um, and this is really interesting, right? Uh. He 
so I, I've got to get this right because I don't make notes because I'm not I'm not very good at podcasting, quite frankly. Um, I've only done it for seventy five episodes. I get I'll get the get used to it in a minute. He drives out to shoot Michael Ryan. Well, not to shoot Michael, to tell him you need to disappear because even your dad has turned against you because you messed so much stuff up. And he's talking to um, Michael Ratport. They're outside this sort of, you know how everyone seems to be struggling for money, and yet they've got a cabin in the countryside that they could probably just sell to pay off the debts, but they still really? maintain yeah. it any, anyway. So they're out there, and he's sitting on this jetty, and he says, you need to disappear. And, you know, but Martha said that she loves you. And Michael Rapp goes, oh, okay, 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 okay. And then he walks off screen. You just hear a gunshot. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, he just killed himself. That's it. So that I thought, well, that gets him out of the way so they can have a happy ending. And at least I won't have to listen to him. Oh, do you remember we used to look at each other's bums and laugh? And so he drives back and he says to Parker Posey, oh, and I guess to make – Michael Rapport not look like he's given up. He says, oh, you know, they got to him before I could help him sort of thing. So he's just been killed by these gangsters. And she's, oh, my God. Instantly goes into bed with Triple H. Wakes up in the morning and Triple H is there. And then she getting dressed. And suddenly Parker Posey sat in a chair in the bedroom and saying to him, why, why didn't you save him? You let him die. And he says, what? what? And then she, she shoots him. Okay. And then he... And then it cuts and he's getting up and there's no one in the room, right? He's just in the house, her house that she had in my grandpa, stumbling around trying to like dress the wound. And then he drives up to the cabin that he was at the day before with Michael Rapport shot himself and he hid the body and stuff. And when he gets up there and he's like sort of pale and passing up from blood loss, Parker Posey runs out and says, oh, I'm so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. I thought, well, hang on. You just shot him in, in the house. He left the house straight away yeah. and now you're there. And she was like in a nighty. And it's like, it's like, what? And then he, she says, oh, but our daughter heard us talking and she knows everything. And then she just throws himself. It's like, oh, daddy, I love you. What? what? And then, yeah. And then <laughs> the film just like wraps up and everyone is happy. And, then it, uh, mm. and it, it cuts to like these odd scenes of like Bruce doing outside, getting away with something that wasn't even a plot point. Then it cuts to some, oh, the whole film, by the way, is about fags. Um, because the, the whole reason they're looking into Bruce Dern's uh, veterinary practice is because they believe, well, no, he's he's importing fags and selling them on without paying tax. So this is a f- bad film about pickles and fags. <laughs> and, 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 it should have just I'm, been called pickles and fags. <laughs> I I can't. I'm not doing it justice. To how much when she shoots him like i don't know what happened. I don't know. It's like they put the wrong cut of the film together. The last time it doesn't make any sense. Last act, but it sounds like the characters in this movie are almost like trying to escape the movie they're in. It's funny you should say that because, of course, this came on a DVD on which there are special features. <laughs> and I'm watching it, and, it, and they're all got stupid comedy titles. And one of them is a, 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 it's like a series of running, I don't know if it's jokes or not, it's Michael Rappaport behind the scenes. And he's just complaining about Triple H. I'm like taking too many takes and not being professional, but it's it's not like done in a fun way. Hmm. He just looks like he's just miserable on set, and then it cuts to Parker Posey, and she seems really disinterested and like a bit embarrassed. And I thought these really should not be special features. <laughs> like this is just yeah. it just makes the whole this film is the best more, you've got. It's yeah. disgruntled actors would rather be elsewhere. Yeah, and then there's one mildly funny bit where um, 
Michael Rappaport is talking to the camera and saying, oh, the thing about Triple H, he's so humble and, you know, he's he's not a big star. And then he, Triple H walks on behind him shouting, I need to go to the toilet. Where are my wipers? Where are my wipers? And then he looks down and, and he, he calls over his two assistants and says, you, which one of you put my shoes on? I think they're on the wrong feet. And that's quite funny. But yeah. it, that's not reflected in the film because yeah. it's, it's just a bad film. That just means they're more the, fun yeah. behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. I, it's it, it's better than Barricade because at least it was an interesting failure. But my God, I just don't know why WWE are making these films. I don't know what they're going to benefit from them. When was this one made? 2011. Okay. And, okay, so this is another one where you have to go down to the charity shop. In Cardiff. Or, or maybe even in Torvine, I don't know. You go to the charity shop and have a big and just Maybe. See. Brit will sell yeah. them to you as a job lot. Who knows? Yeah. We'll meet in Blind Lechai. <laughs> um, I watched a film called 65. Have you seen this? Um, no, I don't believe so. So this is... Uh, I, I watched it on Prime. I paid for it actually on Prime. But it, I think it's coming to Netflix soon. So You paid cash money. Yes. Um, it's a sci-fi action movie starring adam driver who he plays a dude from another planet who needs to go on an expedition into deep space to raise money to help his sick child uh but then she dies and he goes anyway and ends up crash landing on earth planet earth 65 million years ago from oh, i've heard i've heard of this right yeah. okay uh and which also happens to be the exact moment that the asteroid is about to hit Earth and end the reign of the dinosaurs, which is unlikely, but okay. Um, so, yes, basically, Adam Driver needs to get to the escape pod and escape the planet and get back home in the next 12 hours or whatever. So, okay. one may well ask how it is possible to mess up a 90-minute action movie where Adam Driver fights dinosaurs yeah, I'm looking uh, at the cast list, and I think there's only four people in this entire film. It sounds great. I know, but they really did go out of their way to try and achieve that. So it's, for a start, it's not just Adam Driver fighting dinosaurs. It's Adam Driver coming to terms with the grief of losing his daughter back on his home planet. And the way they deal with this is by having one of the one of the cryogenic pods on his ship intact. And, of course... This other soul, uh, other survivor of this crash is a young girl around his daughter's age. So see where this is going. So thereafter, you get a, a bunch of scenes of them bonding through various perils. And you get moments of levity. And it's all very predictable and sentimental. Whilst also being immensely shallow and overwrought. And the pace is very stuttering in this movie. And it does beg the question, why, why have... Why do it this way? Why not just set up the stakes that like he set up the stakes with his sick daughter? And so and he goes off planet. So surely couldn't the stakes just be, oh, I need to get home to my sick daughter. Why? Why do you need to introduce this other character? Why couldn't it just be Adam Driver desperately trying to fight his way off this planet? Which would have been cool. Um, you know, Adam Driver surviving in the prehistoric world would have been pretty rad. But no, they had to hollywoodize it as best they could by having this sentimental relationship at the center of it but on top of that anyway like the actual 
editing of the action is quite weak and it's good and the, the sound editing so bad like there are scenes where did christopher be... nolan do it <laughs> well i will come to that but there are literally scenes in this where he'll be shooting away with his rifle and like half the shots seem to be making no sound it's really weird or uh, like in some scenes it's not clear what is like atmospheric sound and what is part of the music score uh, which you. is never good and then, the, and then, yes, the Nolan aspect is the sound mix is completely shot. Like most modern films, to be fair, like the music is so unbear- overbearingly loud, and so are the sound effects. But the dialogue is barely audible, and the music, by the way, is just the most. It's so generic, so utterly generic. It might as well be a placeholder score. Like they just put that in there, like some royalty-free score they put in during the rough cut or whatever. But it's there. And they're, they're just basic storytelling issues. I mean, I, I, it's too tedious to explain, but like, <laughs> essentially, there's it, it, there's a scene where he is trying to persuade, because him and this girl can't really communicate directly because she speaks a different language or whatever. Um, but... He's so they communicate in in kind of drawings and stuff. It's just another route to sentimentality, really. But uh, it's essentially one scene where he's trying to persuade her to come with him because otherwise she'll die. Um, but it's so badly handled that um, the kind of like his trick to get her to come with get her to come with him is it's completely unclear what the meaning of it is, what the kind of hidden meaning of that is. And it it means that when when she finds out the truth behind what he said to her, like duped her basically um, to come with him, when it gets to that point, it's meant to like be a real heavy hitting, like emotional. It's meant to be the emotional gut punch of the film. And I was like, I don't know why that's why is that relevant? Oh, I didn't understand in the first place. It was it was too badly made, too badly edited, and too badly um, implied that I didn't actually pick it up in the first place. So that that emotional moment, that key emotional crescendo is completely lost on me. And it's like, come on, it's got two characters. How can you mess this stuff up? It's not like it's juggling a lot. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, come on, just make a good movie, please. But yes, the uh, it's got like, it obviously ratchets up until at the end, it's kind of a bit, goes a bit Jurassic World. And I will say the visual effects are very impressive for what is a lower budget movie. And Adam Driver is, of course, very committed to the role. But just the film is just no fun at all. And it's a real it's a real waste of a very cool concept, to be honest. 65 is a shit title as well. Terrible. Absolutely terrible. Yeah, that's yeah. Because I just was looking at the thing, and his his spaceship is called the Zoic, and that would have been a better title because it would have tied a few things in. Yeah, yeah, yeah that would have that would have worked. It's just, yeah, it just seems like it's, it's just a series of bad decisions <laughs> made throughout. It, it feels like one of those movies which probably started off as something much more interesting and um, unusual and original, and possibly just. You can imagine it starting off as just literally him 
on a planet. A, a, a wordless plot. Exactly. And you know what probably happened is I suspect along the way there were too Rewrites. many moments. There were too many moments where he was thinking, well, I I don't know how to explain to the audience what he's trying to do here. So ah, oh, screw it. We're going to need another character. But you know there are ways around that. Could he have Emily Blunt from the first <laughs> Sicario movie? It would have been no, but I I was I hate is as a, a critic you can't really like, like come up with ideas of what would make films better. But sometimes you just got to say why not have him on his own on this uh, planet and have him kind of conjure his dead daughter as a kind of companion for him. Because in that way, you'd better deal with the whole grief thing, but also it'd give him a reason to explain what he's doing. So that would have been more interesting. And then you could have st- stuck with the whole l- alone on the planet thing yeah. without well, all even, the even just the, unlikely even just, schmaltz. Even if he just was dictating his events in case in case it got yeah. discovered. Yep. To like a dictaphone or something with a cassette in it. Uh, <laughs> with a ferric tape. Eric 60 seen he'd have to talk fast yeah no that's uh yeah uh, we've just come up with better we should well we'll text adam and see if he wants to re-edit it with our ideas in maybe we'll uh, maybe we can we could call it 66 to be a sequel <laughs> it's just the same film again um yeah. but better i've only got one more now uh, before we before it's over to you but this is a two minute trashing my brother my lovely beloved much loved brother gives me a lot of films to watch and like i said i'm trying to make my way through them and regardless of how much it actually hurts me to watch them and the other day i said i said to Faye, right there's two films here which one do you want to watch and she chose one and the one she chose and listen to me carefully here was ghosts in the machine not ghosts in the machine ghosts in the machine which is a french horror also called house of vhs um and on the cover and the cover is well the cover isn't even on imdb the one i've got it, which is in a slip case. It's like, it looks like a ripoff. It, it's, uh, what's that? What's that there here? Film begins with a P. Poltergeist. Poltergeist. With it, you know, so the cover is a woman looking at a VHS screen and this hands on the screen, right? So it's a total ripoff of that. Okay. This film, this film starts off and I knew I was in trouble because it was really, it was really grainily filmed and, I won't tell you when it was made, right? This is um, this has got 2.5 on IMDb. 2.5. It's possibly the lowest rated film I've ever covered. Um, and that is a generous score. It's a girl that's saying she's a blogger and she's like, oh, I need to do a blog, but what can I do? I'm going on holiday, 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 and it does this weird cut where she just says the word holiday in a few different types, and it just smash cuts to her, uh, in a car, and there's two other people on a bike with just a load of people. I assume they were friends, and they just they're just driving through countryside. We later find out it's French. So she's an she's a British person who's there in the French countryside with these people. They turn up. One of them says to the other, "Is this the house?" And he says, "Yes." No one's. I've lived. It's a French guy. He says, "I've lived here since I was a kid. No one's ever come here. They've obviously just forgotten that they own it." which seems completely believable. That's a completely <laughs> believable thing to say. I'm always losing, um, tra- losing track of the houses I own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've been chased by the inland revenue, aren't you at the moment? Um, <laughs> so, um, so yeah, he, they, they go to this house, which isn't clearly hasn't been derelict for years. It's got a bit of dust on a table and everything else is fine. And over the next few minutes, I thought these people don't know each other because it's quite international. The cast, you've got uh, an Italian girl, 
a Belgian girl, an Australian guy, an American guy who, for some reason, I don't know if it's supposed to be a joke, claims to be American, but they point out he's actually Icelandic, uh, a French bloke, and then there's someone else as well who doesn't doesn't matter. Um, And it's just them, it's the first 20 minutes is them just doing odd things in this house, like doing exercises outside and then just drinking and smoking and just having conversations and but all complaining about being there because they turn up and they're like well, there's no power there's no water and you think well yeah there wouldn't be if it's a derelict house would it but it's like none of them want to be there but they don't all know each other so i thought well mm. how did this trip get planned how how did you how did you, how did you all meet yeah. was it not explained at all it's all cut out the film and then there's one sequence then where the 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 Australian guy is having a pee outside and the camera angle totally changes. He's having a pee and he's whistling this weird uh, tune and the camera sort of follows him. And he, and I thought this is going to be the moment when the horror kicks in 15 minutes in and the camera falls him for a long time through the grounds of this house. And then he suddenly just walks instead of going into the house, he's still whistling this tune and he goes into like a barn. We don't follow him in, but he walks into the barn, gets a ladder, comes out Walks in the barn directly to get the ladder, by the way. Comes out, walks with the ladder around the corner to another part of the house, climbs up to an attic part of the barn, and does a padlock, goes in there, and opens a chest, and like a light shines on him, kind of like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. And he okay. sort of does this weird smile. He goes back in the house and says, I found a lot of VHS tapes in the attic. And I thought, and, and I realized that the film is supposed to be that he was just exploring but he did everything in a really sort of strict <laughs> fact there was no searching like he i thought how for one how do you get the padlock off but but he literally walked directly there and found it you know what i mean it was there was no like on oh, pretend you're at least looking around that was no, there was no acting as they say. yeah acting, if you will so then the opens the vhs and they're all called like uh cowboys aliens from space um whatever big action jumps and then they're all talking and I realized I thought the film, the way it's filmed and the, and the, the, the graininess, I thought it was an early 2000s DVD, right? Yeah. And then one of them says, oh, yeah, this, um, the, what's VHS? And he's like, well, it was pre-DVD and Blu-ray. And I thought, Blu-ray? So this is relatively recent, 2016, this is. And, but, and then the woman, this one of the girls, is like looking at the VCR and she's looking at the symbols. Bear in mind, it's like pause, play. Fast forward, universal symbols. And she's like, what are these? Hang on. How old How old are these people? Early 20s. Early 20s, 2016, and they've never heard of VHS. <laughs> like, that was still pretty popular up until the mid, what, 2005? You know. I think bullshit. Bedazzled. Or was it Bedazzled Bewitched with um, Will Ferrell was the last film released on VHS? Really? Yeah. Um, so they, they then the, this, they're, all, they're all really, really bored. Really bored. And I, I was, this was testing my patience because I thought I'm watching people bicker. Like they don't get on. There's no, they're not having fun. They don't get on with each other. They're bickering at each other. There's one like jock there who keeps on making dick jokes. There's a really bizarre sequence where the Australian guy says laser dick instead of laser disc. And they all like laugh at him really hard. And he just keeps on repeating laser discs over and over again as if he's got like like some sort of mental issue. But it's just mm. but edited really quickly. And it's like, I don't know what that oh, was. And I thought, as I was watching it, I thought Faye was on a laptop doing work. And I thought, is this 
have I just been completely tricked by the cover image? And this is actually just like a really, really misjudged comedy. But no, it, I thought it must there must be horror elements in it. So I looked on the back and it said a French horror. Um, and every now and again, I was watching this film and I, it was so boring just watching people bicker and wander around this house and stuff. That every Faye, I know when Faye would look up from a laptop because she would just say, "Wow." And then go back to what she was doing, and it happened every like five or ten minutes. And then it got to a point where they were putting these VHS tapes in and just watching them. But it was obviously public domain footage they can use in this film of like cowboy films and old westerns and old horror films. But they're all just sat there watching it, and so the camera's just flitting between what's on screen and them watching it. There's no, there's no like narrative movement. It's just right. space filler. And at that point, I thought, fuck this, and I just fast forwarded it. To when something happened, which is about 25 minutes later, and all of a sudden the Australian guy just gets—it's oh, so boring. He, he just suddenly there's a red filter on the screen, and he suddenly gets obsessed with watching these cassettes all the time. And if it's people don't want to watch him, he just kills them. But of course, it's all in this one little room in this like boring 60s farmhouse, and the, the death scenes are really boring. And oh, Rupert, I. I watch a lot of films and I watch a lot of bad films and I feel very comfortable in saying this is one of the worst films I've ever seen ever. <laughs> it is so, so boring. It, I, I don't, the best thing about it is the cover. And even that is a lie. It just is full of people who can't act following like a non script. Just it's like everyone in the film is bored. And so if the people in the film are bored and it's filming boring things, can you imagine how it makes you feel as a viewer? It felt like the film was 2000 ice ages long. And I watched 45 minutes of it. And in the end, I just gave up fast forward at the end and thought, Oh my God, I'm so glad I did that. Otherwise I would have hung myself with my own feet. <laughs> so yeah, if you, anyone ever wants, if the people talk, say, Oh, I saw the new Avengers on the worst film ever. I'll say, watch ghosts in the machine. If you want to see what a bad film is, what? like not bad as in Godfrey Ho, ha ha ha, this is bonkers but entertaining. This is a bad film. This is my. This will now be my go-to example of a boring bad film. Ten out of so, ten. is it more boring than an Albert P. Nemesis sequel? Oh, you're testing me now. Well, the thing is, at least that's got Andrew Div off in it, and admittedly. Oh, actually, I would rather watch Nemesis for Revenge of the Death Angel because one, there's boobs in it, and two, there's actual dialogue. It's aimless, boring, face in full shot, just constant talking dialogue. But at least there's like some sort of law, like as unwieldy okay. as it may be. This is just like watching bored people hang around. Okay. So yeah, I'd rather watch Nemesis for Death Angel. We really should try and construct a list of genuinely the worst films ever made, shouldn't we? Um, That'd be cause... such a horrible task because for me, it's like when they're boring. It's like when there's, yeah, no- yeah. there's nothing. There's nothing. There's nothing. It's it's just yeah. It it makes there these kind of films where it makes you feel it makes you feel worse for having watched them because it because the boredom makes it such a waste of time as well. Yeah. It's not like it's not like there's anything 
it's not like a guilty kind of pleasure oh this is so crap or it, it was giving me like a, like a, even thinking about it now is i don't suffer from headaches but you know that frontal lobe like an ache like a like a <laughs> like a tension headache where you're just thinking oh, i've got to watch this and and it was clearly so bad and there was nothing happening and by the way the score in it as well it's it, it's um every time they mentioned something. It would play like a little theme, like it was a 70s sex comedy. Like it would say, someone mentions a dick, it would go like, or if if um, someone, if he says, oh, there's loads of films in this box, there's a cowboy film, and you'd just like, yeehaw, or oh, there's an alien film, and it would be, and it's like, it's like, this is, that's why I thought, is this just a shit comedy that I've stumbled on? I could not believe that it was made in 2016. And I, 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 I don't even like talking about it. I don't. It's sick. It's making me feel sick. So I don't want to talk about it anymore. One of the worst films I've ever seen, except with Granny from 1995. But at least that film was an hour long. Um, I did check Just Watch, and you can rent this movie on <sighs> Apple TV if you want. Well, how much? It's £5.49 pence to rent. Fucking hell. <laughs> If anyone listening to this wants that DVD, I will post it to you for free. I'll you send pay a message, send a message to the men who talk at Outlook.com and I will send it to you for free, regardless of where you are in the world. Uh, um, Extraction 2, then. Oh, you, yes. You said, you said you watched this? I did, yes. I watched this with my feet and my eyes. Um, Tyler Rake. That's his name. It's an unlikely name, isn't it? Uh, what's his name? Chris? Is it Chris Hemsworth? Chris O'Donnell. Chris. <laughs> uh, anyway, so he somehow survived dying, literally dying in the first film. <laughs> survived dying. <laughs> he he died. Anyway, so he's recuperating and in retirement in a wooden shack, obviously. Um, in Austria. Just needs a quick montage to make himself feel a bit better. Then Idris Elba rocks up. <laughs> in a cameo. He he rocks up. He's in this film for briefer than I am. But yeah, he um he basically says, Go and you save your ex wife's sister from and her kids from an evil Georgian terrorist. And not not and then he says, Not that Georgia and then he says, the oh, one, yeah, right, Okay. Uh, the one where they wear jumpers and they have to so basically he has to extract the family from the prison facility and then extract them from a tower block that's pretty much it he has a bit of help from Nick the lady from the first film this time she gets to do some proper fighting this time around albeit in that slightly compensatory way that tiny women do in action films where they'll use their thighs to like flip six foot men onto the ground and then stab them in the legs that sort of thing. Um, and the action scene's pretty good. Uh, and I do appreciate a lack of editing, so you can actually see what's happening. So thank you for that. Um, um, I'm sure I'm not going to be the first or last to suggest that everything in between the action is perfunctory, shall we say. Yeah. To the extent you might as well go and make a drink or have a poo. Uh, <laughs> like I've got to have a fag, have a poo as well. Have a ba- have a full two hour bath in between the action scenes. <laughs> There's a point when Tyler Rake's ex 
shows up, played by Olga Korolenko. And my heart did sink a bit because I, I knew <laughs> I wasn't going to be interested. Not just because I have the attention span of a two-year-old, but because Joe Russo, one of the, the writer, he can't write sensitive or interesting character moments. All he can do is fill time with non-fighting talk. And that isn't the same as character development or plot. And our friend Laszlo actually mentioned to us before, well, certainly before I saw this, he mentioned that the bad guy literally phones in the ending because because Joe Russo couldn't think of a plausible way for Tyler Rake to finally face his nemesis. So he just calls him up and says, do you want to fight? It's like, yeah, all right. Let's go. It's, um, yeah, he, like I said, when Olga Kurilenko turns up and, he's, and um, Chris Hemsworth staring into a fire and she stands next to him and it's obviously between fighting. So he looks at her and says, oh, do you remember when I used to fight? And then she said, oh, I used to love fighting. He said, oh, bloody, bloody love a bit of fighting. And then she goes away. It's brilliant. It's, it's totally But it, what I think, what, again, and again, I did literally get choked. This is how bad I am. I got choked up at a point in this film. This is how pathetic I am with films. But even I was aware that it's like, don't have this amazing action film. And then and then in between, like, bring up, bring up, like, terminally ill children and stuff to try and artificially extract depth from a character. Yeah. So transparent. It's so obvious, isn't it? Um, did you... I said that, choking back tears, though. Yes. Um... So, what did you think of Extraction 2? What well, did I think? Really... Well, that was your review, was it? Fucking hell. You lazy well, bastard. Well, I could say well, more. I mean... It... I think we should say more, because I actually quite enjoyed it. I, I I think I'm... I don't watch many modern action films. <laughs> and so and so when... And, it's, and I like it when they're lean. So, like I said, the, the, the in-between fighting stuff, but I thought... The action sequences you got were quite generous, and I made two comments, right? And you know what? I don't not really not really one for I'm not a bugger for notes, but I've written two things. So my comments on my phone say extraction two, and one of them says like worryingly close misses with gunshots. I really like that about this film that every time someone gets into a gunfight, mm. the bullets were fucking close to them. <laughs> like it's just like a hide of myself. It's like. Jesus, that was close. That was close. That was, and I quite like. It's not like wildfire, if you know what I mean. Mm. It's like every time there's a shotgun, like people are getting through things by the skin of their ass, and yeah. uh, and like fight scenes are quite brutal, and like the wounds. Like when he snaps that guy's hand in half in the middle yeah, of a fight, yeah, he has a rough time. You know, that, I don't know if you see it, but after that, there's um on the special features, there's a phone call between him and his agent questioning his future snooker career. Uh, <laughs> but um, there's but the other comment I made, I don't understand. So I said Extraction 2, like great gunplay, like the gunfights are quite tense because all of the miss, there's a lot of near misses and yeah. people like looking through things. And I love that stuff. But then I've written Low Balcony. <laughs> I don't know what that's specifically referring to. I don't know, what that, oh, yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know what that's about. Low so if anyone Balcony. Else, if, if anyone's watched Extraction 2 and thought, that's a low balcony, let me know what I was talking about. Uh, the men who talk at Outlook.com. Um, I mean, they have a fight on a very high roof. Yeah, well, that's the opposite of a low balcony. Yeah, don't make me really. sound like a fool. Don't make me sound no, like a fool. Yeah, silly sausage. I like the, uh, the, the brother and sister team getting involved. And I, and I, I felt like I was completely, yeah. I w- understood everything that was happening. And I felt like everything was high risk. 
Um, it's just all the stuff involving children and him like looking into fires while nursing a whiskey and reminiscing at well not reminiscing looking back at the worst moments of his life i just thought oh i don't know you it's like you're trying to I, my mind always goes back to <laughs> um the first example this we came across on the podcast was when they released it follows and one of the producers said oh everyone who watches the film is thinking where did it come from maybe it could be explored yeah. in the next film and i thought no 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 that's what that's what's good about it is we don't we don't give a shit and it's like that where this is like he's gonna have another flashback about his son being very ill and him going off to georgia not that one to hit someone with something that's heavier than the person he's hitting <laughs> yes i probably liked it slightly this new i thought it was fine uh and I guess it falls somewhere. It's trying to get some sort of niche between John Wick and Mission Impossible, I guess. Uh, but I think what it lacks is that almost self-parodying sense of mythic humour that you get in John Wick. And it doesn't quite have the team dynamic element of Mission Impossible. And I'm... And I think I've got to come to terms with the fact that it's not really filling a niche and it is just a bit of an inferior knockoff, but that's okay because it's still, these action films are cool and you do get what you're looking for. You're not really there for, I don't know, a particularly interesting main character because he's not interesting. He's just grumpy, which is fine. You forget to mention he's incredibly sexy though. Oh, unbelievably so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't realize Faye was telling me as we were watching this that he was in Neighbours. I didn't know that. But then one of the episodes of our podcast, is yeah, one of the episodes of our early, well, early episodes of this podcast is literally, I assume everyone is in Neighbours. Yeah, I would write yeah. this instance. So yeah, Extraction Two, it's like, it's fine as far as I'm concerned. It does a job. I, so although it does strike me that Netflix. Is almost it's, it's got this mandate of being the straight to video streaming service when it comes to these mainstream action adventure movies, which is okay by me, you know. Yeah, because I'm, I'm thinking about this before we bear that in mind. The hint, there's no point spoiling it here because we both enjoyed this, but the hint at a third film, how did you feel about that? Because I thought, good, I can watch this. Yeah, yeah, Again. I just keep watching them. I mean, what are they going to do? They're going to turn them out every. 18 months, two years, I suppose. And yeah, because again, fine. the next one, it's like they've done the whole family thing now, so at least you wouldn't have that nonsense dragging it down. It'll just be able yes. to fight. I, I think as long as... Yeah, as long as they can keep them lean, fairly mean, and have a bit of bit of tongue-in-cheek. I just... You know, because I, I, they don't just, like, get tempted to kind of expand the universe into massively turgid three-hour epics in all fairness this is you say this is a two-hour film and it did not feel like a two-hour did film, not feel like a two-hour film. i felt like a 90 minute there. Yeah. so that was good yep. um but yeah you're saying that netflix is the the sort of modern go-to directed dvd service it is true because i was thinking well hang on i watch a lot of patsy shash on amazon but then that's all retro stuff whereas yeah and the, the last thing i watched on amazon was that guy richie film a lot of people like more than i did what was it the one with Jason Statham? Operation Fortune. Yeah, I, I really didn't like that. And, um, yeah, I really didn't. So, like so then, watch, watching this is kind of like, oh, here we go. This is this is what I this is what I want from action films, which is believe it or not, action. Yes. Yeah, so. I, and I. 
Yeah, it gets the balance about right, I suppose. I mean, Daniel it does take Bern- itself seriously, but... Daniel Bernhardt is in this film, and he is a man who I fancy who is in the bar, and I don't know what I know him from. Okay. Um, he is in John Wick. It may be from John Wick, I know, but he's in, actually he's in a lot of films that I quite like. But um, yeah, if you look, if you, if you type in Daniel Bernhardt, you recognize him straight away. And he is, he's 57, so he's allowed to be in the bar. Yeah. And because he's Swiss, maybe he can be the Swiss translator, like sips bourbon at the end of the bar. And when someone Swiss comes in and I don't know what they're saying, I say, oh, Daniel, what are they saying? And then he tells me what they're saying. And I say, thank you, Daniel, for telling me what they're saying. It's a specific job now that I think about it. I don't know what his title would be. <laughs> is he in a lot of action movies, Daniel Bernard? Yes, he is. None yes, that I've is. seen. I mean, he's in Bloodsport 2, obviously. And 4. Uh, he's in no- Come on, he's in Nobody, Red Notice, Matrix Resurrections, Extraction 2, Kill Plan, Kill Em All, Atomic Blonde, Logan. He's in lots of films you've seen. John Wick, Parker. You probably haven't seen Parker. Uh, the ones I have heard of from that list, I sus- I'm not sure that he's going to be the main character. Or the no, main actor, I don't think to he's going to be the main actor in any of those films. <laughs> Come on, he is the main actor in Bloodsport 4, or The Dark Hunter. Is that what it's called? I thought I've got um, I've got that on DVD to watch, but I think I might actually have Kickboxer 4. I always get Bloodsport and Kickboxer mixed up. It's not called the Dark Hunter. It's called the Dark Cumite. 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 What? What is that? Yeah. Cumite. The word. It means something. It means something like um, delicate fight to the death. Effectively, Cumite is okay. like a fighting tournament. I mean, you probably could guess that if it was the fourth movie. Oh, you're going to guess it. it's probably about a fighting tournament. Oh yeah, it's the Cumite is the part of karate in which a person trains against an adversary. Alright. <laughs> For example, a script written by Godfrey Ho. Um, right. Where have we got? So I think we've we've pretty much extracted everything we can out of ourselves by now. Well, are you, so we're moving on to um, yeah, we've we've done Utah Smith's movie, rhyming movie Stephen Lang. We've done the movie reviews, so it takes us to the Arkinstar. Mm. Um, Do you want me to kick this one off? This was one. This one was Aidan Gillen's. Stephen Lang. Well, well I, if I may interject, Rupert, the, yeah. you, you remember a few episodes ago, mm-hmm. I, I said that there should be a Frasier Arkansas. Yes. With linking the three main uh, male cast members of Frasier, John Mahoney, Kelsey Grammer, oh, and yeah. David Hyde Pierce. Go on. Sure. No, that's... I, oh, I, I, thought you, I thought you said I. I thought you were going to say have done it. I, have, I, I, I will say something. I have not done it. My my beautiful brother Transvaal brought over when he was shoveling a lot of shit through my letterbox the other day for me to watch. Fucking the worst films I've ever seen. Um, he uh, he, we sat down and we just kind of started talking about the podcast. And I said, "Hey, the Fraser Arkansas." And within about ten minutes, we'd kind of wangled it, and it was oh, really nice. interesting because I don't tend to do them. So it's so we we've done this. So I'll count you. I tell you, you count the steps as we go through okay. this. So. So this is from Britain Transvaal, and this is John Mahoney was in Code of Silence with Chuck Norris, who was in Expendables 2 with Sylvester Stallone, who was in Expendables 3 with Kelsey Grammer, who was in Money Plane with Thomas Jane, who was in Face Off with Nicolas Cage, who was in Season of the Witch, not that one, with Ron Pillman, who was in Hellboy with David Hyde Pierce. Oh, that's a seven-stepper. Yeah. 
the seven stepper and i got code of silence with chuck norris and a film with adam copeland in there as well so that's good <laughs> that, that me, me mentioning kelsey thomas jane was in money plane is probably the only good thing that's come of that movie where kelsey Grammer just sat down and went on the phone and edge sat down and talked into a phone on a plane wow. absolutely amazing cg blood that's what i remember from that so yeah that's the seven steps so th- can you think of a can you off the top of your head can you toss up another turbo uber mega arkenstar it's just got to be had- an ensemble cast yeah what I'm saying? um you got we've done friends we've done so we've got fraser we've done Maybe. friends we've done fraser what can we do next what oh what about cheers jesus yeah Hopefully, I'll be able to mention Money Plane again because Kelsey Graham was in that. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, it was funny. The Fraser when, again. When, when we sat down, we sat down and said, like, What's John Mahoney in? And said, Well, he's always like a judge or a, like a police officer or something. I said, oh, he's yeah, in Code or, of Silence. Possibly, he'd be in a war room or something, yeah. yeah. And then it came to Kelsey Graham and it's like, What's he in? I said, Well, obviously, in case uh, Transvaal, sorry, said Money Plane. And I saw him down Periscope as well. Um, so there's that, but yeah, that didn't take us anywhere. Kelsey um, Graham so, against you two X Men as well. So you got Ensemble there going on there. Oh, I, I, don't, I don't, I don't, it pisses me off the Marvel thing. I, I, don't, I feel like it's cheating. Marvel and DC is cheating. You've got to stick to budgets of under 15 quid. <laughs> feel like you're adding some new rules to the 11th hour here. Okay. So yeah, the, the new Turbo Mega Uber Ultra Arkenstar is yeah. the cast of Cheers. So we'll stick with the main And only films it. under half a million dollars budget. Bloody hell. So I got to so put that in Catman Compass in Cheers. You had Kelsey Grammer, um, um, Ted, Danson, Ted, Ted Danson, Woody Harrelson. Mm. Was, what's the one who played uh, George Wentz? George Went. Was that it? George, I, yeah, I mean, I think that would be a reasonable. How many did okay. you have? Four. Four. So, yeah, I think four. Oh, four yeah, right. so so George went. Yeah. Through Ted Danson, Woody Harrelson, and Kelsey Grammer, even though Kelsey Grammer is a sub character, but it's fun to throw him in so people can talk about down Periscope. Um, or maybe it's called a Periscope. It doesn't matter. Um, so it's probably the sequel or some shit. Like that. <laughs> so. Um, so obviously George did, Went was in um was in House with William Cat. Oh, that's the amazing William Cat. I need to watch more of his. I need to watch Ghost White Ghost again. Well, the scene in in um, House where George Went says, "Well, I can see what the problem is. Sir. You've got a portal to hell behind your bathroom <laughs> cabinet." What a huh? movie! I, what By a the fourth movie. one, the joke had worn a bit thinner, wasn't I? Yes, yeah, so thinner than Kelsey Grammer's hair. So. <laughs> You've got, what is it, Aidan Gillen to Stephen Lang off your trot, baby? Aidan Gillen was in The Dark Knight Rises with Christian Bale, who's in Terminator Salvation with Sam Worthington, who's in Avatar with Stephen Lang. Oh, wow. You were proud of that one, weren't you? Um, I could tell you what well, I had to, <laughs> I did it in about 10 minutes before this thing, but I was lucky. <laughs> um it was quite an easy route in the end that's a three-stepper and i i've got to say as well that um you did mention then um sam worthington and i'm really glad i haven't seen a film with him in for a while because mm. his hair was a problem a real problem I, i'm not sure that was his key problem but yeah that is a problem definitely <laughs> okay so uh, 
we've got three long lifers, well, four lifers here now. So Laszlo Buckets said Aidan Gillen was in Blitz. That's a good film, that is, with Jason Statham, who was in Fast and the Furious 27 with Michelle Rodriguez. It was an avatar with Stephen rhyming slang lang. And he's done a little kiss as well. So he's nice. drawn with you there, actually, as a, as a three-stepper. Yeah. Um, Max says Aiden is in Blitz with Statham. Again, good. Who's in Expendables with Arnie. Who's in Terminator with Mickey Bean. Who's in Sigour- with, with Sigourney Weaver in Aliens. Who's in Avatar with Stephen Lang. Correct. And Transvon says Aiden Gillen. <laughs> you can tell he's giving me all these WWE films. <laughs> Aiden Gillen is in 12 rounds with John Cena. He's in Fast, <laughs> the first, the Fast 9 with Kurt Russell, who is in Tombstone with Stephen Lang. So that's a nice thing. Oh, I like that. Um, and Utah Smith has sent me this literally just before I almost I played a accident earlier on. This is Utah Smith's entry. I haven't actually listened to this yet. Just in the hot tub, I'm on a glass of wine. And I haven't really been thinking about it, but this Arkansas just popped into my head. Um... I've done you one already, but I got a different one here. I don't know if it's less or more steps than the last one. But it's um Stephen Lang is in um Tombstone with Kurt Russell, who's in one of the Fast and Furious films with Jason Statham, who's in Blitz with Aidan Gillum. It's just the reverse of one of the ones we've had. Did yes, you notice yes. when he said who's I almost expected him to go where? <laughs> <laughs> It's just the letter W. <laughs> yeah. he just, he just somehow disrupts disrupts his vocal cords as soon as he don't w. Continuum. Yeah. So yeah. So, so it's literally George Wend. <laughs> yeah. I'm darling. I'm just going upstairs for a while. <laughs> Pass me a bit of paper so I can write down ank. Um. <laughs> um so. Yeah, it's, it's a draw. So it's the audience have got 16 and you've got four. So you're catching up slightly. But oh, yeah. we need to think. So apart from the Turbo Mega Ultra Uber Arkansas of the cast, the male cast of Cheers, what are you thinking for the next Arkansas, for the next episode? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we should think about that, shouldn't we? Right. Uvriad. Uvriad. Can, um, can, can I throw in just because... You can throw in anything you want, babe. I won't say Eric McCormack because people will struggle to get from Will and Grace. Um... I want to say Michael Rappaport. I've really been feeling Michael Rappaport. And we've mentioned a few of the films he's in through this podcast, like Metro Six Day, which is obviously a nice one. And obviously people want to like hurtle off inside out. Best of luck. But I, I'm, I'm going to say Michael Rappaport 2. That's your choice. Um... Uh, he's a bit kind of between generations, isn't he? Because I, I like to I like to mess people around. What um, between? You're saying he's between Bruce well, he's, Forsyth he's, and Jim Davis. He's you like my generation game reference there. Pretty, I love it. Pretty so. Michael Rappaport has been around for bloody ages. That's my point. Adam Driver. Michael Rappaport. Oh. Adam Driver is that? I don't think that's too easy, but temptingly. I think I think I will try and do this. I did enjoy doing it with Transvaal the other day. I think I'll have I'll definitely have got the Cheers one because I I was at one point we had about fourteen or fifteen steps and I thought oh see this is when it starts to shine for me because I just love that constant linkages through like really sort of sub films, but um, yeah so 
That's it. I'll have to get back. I've got such a swathe of films to get through, but I, I honestly believe that, that I would be surprised if this year I watch a film as bad of, as Ghosts in the Machine, alternatively mm-hmm. titled House of VHS. That was bad, Transvaal. That was a bad, bad film. <laughs> you were a like bad it, boy. It made me feel a bad brother. It made me feel like I was aging. Like It made me feel grey inside. You know? <laughs> the grey inside. Well, you know what you like want character driven drama didn't it I, when i was watching it i felt like if you you know you like if if for instance i was looking through like an old family photo album there's a picture of me smiling and in the background there's like someone that abused me and he's like looking at me in the picture and you can see the intent in the image i think if i saw a picture of myself watching that film i get the same like shiver the same <laughs> oh my god i know what like I, i'm about to watch that film but i know what's about to happen i yeah. know the emotions i'm about to feel so triggering some sort of ptsd yeah i don't want to watch that film ever again and i wouldn't even bring it around it's like i'll oh, check it on for a laugh because nothing would happen <laughs> apart from sadness <laughs> nothing nothing except for sadness Oh, what a lovely way to end. Um, but so I may as well do it online. Um, so I've made some notes as we go through this. What, what are you thinking as the title for this podcast? Do you want Pining for Sympathy, Slap Bass and Tom Waits, or Too Tedious to Explain? <laughs> um, slap Bass and Tom Waits. I like the fact that it almost rhymes. <laughs> hey, that's what it is then. Yeah, bugger for rhyming you up. Right, okay. I am incredibly in love with you and I'll speak to you soon, possibly about slightly better films next time. Excellent. Yeah, it'd be nice to have not quite as much disappointment next time. Good night, Dad. Bye. Hey, it's Tia Carrere and you're listening to Kino Kingdom with Brit and Rupert. Party on, guys. (laughs) 